Hello, I am Coconut Monkey. Welcome to my island paradise. I am so glad you could join me. Please feel free to explore my world. It is filled with very many fun things to do. I would point them out, but I have no hands. Hello, and welcome to the Square Waves FM podcast, number eight or nine or something like that. Uh, very happy to have you all with us, as always. Uh, I am uh, your host, Mr. Don Incognito, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Chris, standing in for Richard Cobbett. <laughs> if you want to be Mr. Cobbett, you'll have to be a lot more British and speak at about double the speed that you usually do. I'm, yeah, plus, I'm like only about one five hundredth as funny as him, so yeah, I'm not a good replacement. Oh, he is a funny guy. Well, we've, we we uh, will uh, notch up the funniness with uh, our extremely very special guest today. Please introduce yourself, Mister. Hello, gentlemen. Uh, I, I don't have a funny name because uh, I'm not that clever, and uh, I'm Anatoly Shashkin, known in some circles as Dust Nostalgic, and. Uh, uh, your fine listeners might know me as that guy on Twitter who talks about DOS games uh, a lot and also swears a lot. And also that guy on our podcast who uh, who corrects us a lot. And we're happy to have you. Oh, yeah, you. That's, that's true. Oh, yeah. I'm a regular. Yes, I'm, one, I'm a wonderful to have you, Anatoly. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, oh, I'm very happy. I'm very pleased to be here. This is my new favorite podcast. I'm going to just kiss both of your asses right now and <laughs> oh. say it publicly. I adore this. I wait for each new episode, as many other people who I know. So I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm very privileged to be here. Thank you. Oh shucks, oh. dearest of all my friends. All right, very, very, very glad to have you here. Whether or not you choose to kiss our asses, but if you do choose to kiss our asses, we certainly won't mind. And no corrections either. No. Well, that's okay. We've got corrections from from plenty of other people. Oh, good. Yes. All right. Well, why don't why don't I start off with an important one then? Um, last week I had been singing the praises of the uh, Monochrome game, uh, Dominique Pamplemousse, oh, right. which I just wanted to give a quick correction. Uh, the uh, I re- had referred to the uh, developer by the wrong name. Uh, this developer currently goes by the name of Squinky. Yep. Ah, so no longer Deirdre Ki. Uh, that's correct. She's she's chosen. Uh, they have chosen they, their own name. They, Thank you. I see. That's right. So uh, it was important to me to uh, to correct that. Uh, Squinky was kind enough to uh, retweet us when uh, I mentioned uh, that uh, we uh, talked about uh, their game. So oh, awesome! Very very appreciative of that. And boy, do I love that game. It is just like the pluckiest, most adorable game. And I think that uh, that. Um, Humble Bundle deal for Monochrome Games is still up there if anyone's interested. Sweet. Squinky, uh, they're a very nice person. I, 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 I've been a big fan for uh, like over a decade now. Cause, uh, really? I've I played their games since uh, since the, the very first one, uh, Kubert uh, PI. So I, I was I was always a, a, a big fan of theirs. Great games. Very sort of uh, innovative, uh, experimental things they're always very interesting kind of kind of the things that i really like a lot so oh yeah they started off with like uh text adventures like uh, hypertext kind of things and not even before that actually it was a graphic adventure it was actually a monochrome game uh, hmm. uh uh about a private detective 
Wow, uh, I didn't even know that existed. Like very Mancallan-y kind of. Uh, it was a talking potato at one point. Uh, was is were very cool. Didn't Squinky work for LucasArts at some point? Uh, Telltale. Uh, ah. no shit! I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty damn impressive. Wow. That is very impressive. Wow. So thank you. Squinky. I only, yeah, yeah, I, I only actually first heard of Squinky through Dominique Pomplemousse, so I'm way behind. Yeah, same here. But then I became aware of some more of their projects. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, corrections. All right, number two. Uh, having listened now to uh, the the two most recent Blue Cup Tools podcast, hello Ben and Francisco. Uh, I uh, uh, it is now apparent that it is not exactly clear precisely which of Ben Chandler's body parts got smeared all over his copy of <laughs> King's Quest Seven. So we do apologize for getting that fact wrong. We thought it was the the more testicular regions, but it could in fact be somewhere uh, around the corner. Oh, yeah. Wasn't wasn't it the uh, Runaway too? Oh, that he he's got games coming out of just about every orifice or going every into. Orifice. I don't know how that works precisely. I'm kind still of... debating. I just found my boxed full box copy of Runaway Two for which I paid fifty dollars. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, uh, well, and, well uh, done. Money well spent. I, yeah, uh, and uh, I'm yet to decide what I want to do with it. I'm not sure if I'm going to go the whole. Uh, Sort of testicular way, but or I think burning it seems to go a bit easy on it. So uh, <laughs> I'm, something will happen to the to the box. So but what uh, if you listeners can send in suggestions? Uh, oh yeah, that's absolutely. an excellent idea. That's a great idea. Please let us know where Anatoly can stick this thing. Yes, and your, your prize will be hearing about it. I bought this game on sale uh, from Future Shop, which is a little Canadian uh, computer retailer. Maybe it's not little; it's kind of like the biggest one in the whole country. But uh, I, I was so I was so um, charmed by the graphics on the box, and then when I loaded it up and everything, it's a beautiful game, so beautiful, mm-hmm. and it is like completely brain dead. This thing makes like Baywatch look like Shakespeare. I do not know what <laughs> is up with this game, but it is so detestable. Yeah, design-wise, it's a piece of shit. So, so I, heard, I hear, I, I didn't it, get that far. Is it, does it have some pretty terrible voice acting in the English version? Is that the game I'm thinking of? Bad voice acting, uh, bad writing, bad, bad um, localization. I'd Ooh. say, it's uh, to me, what mostly got me is, is, is an awful design. It's one of those games where you look in a toolbox and you're like, oh, there's nothing there. And like two screens later, there's like a lock. You're like, oh, I can't open this lock without anything. So you bop around for like 15 more minutes trying to like see what you missed. And then you look in the right. toolbox again. And it's like, hey, there's magically a fucking screwdriver in a toolbox. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and you're like, That's awesome. oh, we call it the Roberta Williams game. philosophy. Yeah, Which I don't was... think even Roberta Williams ever did that. Like, it, that's there's no excuse for doing that. that like, that's true. Like, that's true. If you would have, yeah, you would have died if you would have opened the toolbox. Yeah, well, um, like, Jane Jensen did something almost as bad. I don't know whether you guys played Mobius, but... No, in, I haven't, but uh, I know it by reputation. Yeah. Well, in in this game, uh, you will often see some object, and just like... Uh, have you guys ever played the CD-ROM Super VGA version of Gabriel Knight 1? Yes. Uh, yes, the oh, Windows so, version, right? I guess so, yeah, yeah, it is Windows. Yeah, so you know yeah. how, like, the whole... Well, and DOS as well. I don't know if you oh, can do really? Super VGA in DOS, can yes, you? Yes, you can do. Oh, you can. That's wow. right. Yes, and you, you install, can. like, it like, prompts you to install the it's, extra it's, 20 it's megabytes. It's the installer, well. yeah. That's it's right. It's installer. You either install one version or another, but it works. So VGA one works in DOS. That's just right. Fine. 
That's right. Which, so my by point the way, is, I, oh yeah, I don't play that version. I play, I stick with the low res because so those I. items really. I, I I like the portraits. I like the high res portraits, but the high res items like really just hurt my eyes. So. Well, that's just that's yeah. That's what I wanted to say is that you know whenever something can be interacted with because the usable or takeable objects are like double the resolution of the background, so they really stick oh, out like no. a sore thumb. That's a terrible bullshit. It's bullshit. It's so it's really weird. I don't know why they made that choice. Very peculiar. And so, uh, but at least in Gabriel Knight, you know, if you see something like that, you take it, whether you know what you're supposed to do with it or not. You just take it, and you'll have it for right. later. Whereas with Mobius, oh. there'll be something that you know you're going to want to take because it sticks out like that sore thumb. But you can't take it. You'll be like, why would I want that? Then you'll go this, three more screens and thing. figure out that there's... you need it, and then you can take it after that. So it's like it refuses you from taking it until it's you need it. It's one thing if it's like, oh, uh, I. Why would I do that? Which a lot of shitty adventure games do, or just you know by choice. It's like I can't use that now, or I don't need this at the moment, or why would I do that? But to look in the toolbox and be like, which by the way, the screwdriver is not visible. That's a real puzzle in that game, and I'm just making it up. Uh, it's like what you encounter, I think, in the first ten minutes of the game mm-hmm. is like, oh, there's nothing there of importance. Okay, so that just means I'm never going to look into it again, and just exactly. by by oh. sheer luck. You click on it and you're like, oh, now there is magically an important screwdriver in there. And all I can say to that is go fuck yourself. Yeah, for real. That's like one layer of hell lower than Mobius. So that's a real shame. (laughs) That's kind of inexcusable, annoying design. But boy, is that a pretty game. The animation and the art, they're really, really pretty. It's alright. I'm not a fan of that style either. I mean, Runaway 1 did that too. Yeah, yeah, they're both the same. But uh, it's not enough to carry my interest anyway, so... I don't know what I did with that game. I think I might have thrown it in the garbage, actually. <laughs> Which was too good for it. I think I've only done that for, for oh, jeez. I want to say one game, um, and it's speaking of Richard Cobbett, uh, he, he only comes to mind because, A, I think he's the first person that I ever heard who promised that, I think this was on Blue Cup Tools, he would break the King's Quest Seven CD up into little pieces and use it to Garrett himself. Um, (laughs) but also because um, he reviewed the only game in my entire life that I've thrown in the garbage that I physically put in the garbage I've given away games I've I've done anything not to throw them out but this was like a uh, an FMB game called The Critical Path with this like B-grade actor named Eileen Weisinger Mm -hmm. yes was that like a murder mystery one or something like a noir thing or something uh, I don't think so. I think it was meant to be no, a little bit more action-oriented. The cover makes it look like a murder noir mystery. But okay. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's like you basically, uh, like first-person FMV, you're, you're like the, the boss or something, and you're telling, you're telling the character to walk around, and she's got a, like a little camera mounted on the side of her head. So what she's seeing, you're seeing. And it's just absolutely unplayable, like unplayable. And I was so excited. I think it was like two years ago, Richard Cobbett reviewed it for um, uh, the crack shoot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just like, I, I I, don't understand how, you know, I I threw that game out, geez, 15 years ago, and I have no idea how it somehow managed to escape from Canada's, what you know, dumps to find it in Richard Cobbett's hands. Because I'm pretty sure I'm the only person on earth that bought a copy of that game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I have games that I haven't been able to work, and I kept those. But oh, Runaway really? Dream of the Turtle, I, I was sure to get rid of that. 
<laughs> oh yeah, I have this. Um, it's a CD-ROM game. I think it's like five CDs or something. It's uh, the Lawnmower Man. And, oh, uh, you have that? That's has, amazing. So I, I guess I bought it used because all I can, I'm sure I remember seeing the box, but all I can find now are these like five nondescript paper sleeves with all the discs in it. I've never ever been able to get it to work, neither on the, the like the bare metal, the base metal proper machine of the day, right. nor in virtualization after the fact. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I need some well, kind of rocket surgery it, it, degree. It's possible that it is working the way they intended. Basically, you you paid for five CDs of five hours of FMV, and that's what you got. I guess so. <laughs> I'm sure it's a terrible game, but it has yeah, some easy graphics on the box. So I still am in possession of that, but not that not that other lousy adventure game that I'm not going to uh, honor by saying its name again. Yes, we should we should move on, or else I'm going to have more fantasies about Ben Falls. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Let's let's uh, save those fantasies for our private time. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, shall we get then to? Uh, we have a voicemail from uh, a listener by the name of Avi Hayun. I hope I've said his name correctly. Um, and he uh, he has some comments in uh, reference to our uh, previous episode about Roberta Williams. Oh, I can't wait for this. I know. Avi, thank you so, so much for calling in. We appreciate that so much. And uh, fair listeners, we are always happy to hear from you. All right, so let's put this on and uh, see how it goes. Hi, Squares. I wanted to respond to your uh, seventh episode of uh, The Perils of Roberta. Well, I'm so, so happy to hear, to hear your episode, uh, seriously, everyone praises and practically worships Roberta and Kenny Williams for their great works uh, and, and, on Sierra. And as you said, let's, take, let's, get a, let's, get, let, let's get it out of the way, the praises to Sierra, to Ken and Roberta. They did a great work where none was there before. They, they actually invented the, the, the genre of, uh, of the quests and they, they did a great work at that, but that's it. They sucked so much. King Quest 1 and King Quest 2 are basically the same game, the same engine, the same everything. It's just, uh, in King Quest 2, they just continued the, the, the work they did in King Quest 1. I can cut them some slack, you know, because um, they were the first to do those things, but look, look at Luc- LucasArts. Okay. They did that shitty game, uh, Manic Mansion. Okay, many, many people love that game, and for justified reasons. But it wasn't perfect. Like uh, Ron Gil- Gilbert um, put in his uh, infamous uh, post, uh, why adventure games suck. And after that game, they totally redesigned the whole um, thinking of adventure games in LucasArts, and then, and then they came out of much, much, much better games like Monkey Island and many more. They just learned from their mistakes. And that's what Sierra didn't do. That's why Sierra suck. That's why Roberta and Ken Williams are the worst thing which happened to the adventure games um, industry. Because they didn't learn from their mistakes. You know, you, you, did, you, did, you did an adventure game. It was good. It wasn't great. It was good. Now look at what was bad and just m- improve it. Make it much, much, much better like LucasArts did. You saw that dead ends suck, right? Why do you keep having those dead ends for so many more games? 
didn't you get the idea that they suck? You had a text parser. Okay, it was cute. It was it was good for for for, for the beginning, but you know, in some in some sometime you, you you get you get the idea that the text parser isn't so perfect. Even Sierra themselves saw, saw that when when they when they had the the black cauldron when they took it out, it wasn't with a text parser. So so they knew you can have it in a different way. They even saw. Ron Gilbert's and, and all LucasArts game, they saw how you can do it in a different way. Why didn't they improve it? Why did they keep the, the, the pixel hunting, the dead ends, all the shitty things that they have in their adventure games, and they didn't fix them? It took them ages to, to fix things, you know? I would think they were, they, they were, they're smart people. They want to, to have better games, but no, they just wanted money. And that's the point, nailing it down, that's the point... Where, that's the reason why they suck, because they did everything only for money. You, okay, everyone wants money. Also, Lucas Arts wants money. But in order to get money, what will you do? Will you go for the best game you can have, or just you know um, do the best things to, to earn money and don't think about your users? They did uh, they did bad things. Only to get their users to buy their uh, to, to buy their handbooks, to call their, their their lines in order to get hints. They didn't think about the users. They only thought about the money, and that's why they suck. You know, there's there's a a, a very um, infamous discussion: who's better, Lucas Arts and Sierra? You know, it's not even a discussion. It's, it's everyone that plays games from both companies knows that that Lucas Arts are. M Adventures are so, so much better than Sierra's. Think about it. Sierra did so many adventure games. Tens of adventures. Almost 100 adventure games. Each game they did, they also did several revisions in order to, to sell more. They did everything so they can sell more games. Only money. They didn't even think about their users. LucasArts focused on to doing the best product, the best games they can do. That's why Roberta sucks, and that's why I hate the worldwide net that practically worships Ken and Roberta Williams. You know, open your eyes. They 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 did their, their thing, but they were they weren't so good to say the least. So I just don't get it why everybody worships them. Seriously, everyone is sounds like it sounds so fucked up. Yeah, I saw Roberta. You know, she's not something so... She's not so impressive. She's just an old lady which didn't have any idea about how to create any game. The best games of, of, of King Quest didn't come from her. The, the, let's, for example, the King Quest games. The, the best game you can ask, ask every King Quest fan is King Quest 6, which Jane Jensen did. The, the, the only games that were worth something weren't hers. She sucked. She totally sucked. She only was there because she was married to the husband. Her husband was the CEO of Sierra. That's it. Nothing more. There's no other reason. Nobody would have employed her and nothing like that. And it's so sad that she that she gets so much attention she doesn't deserve. Okay. Anyway, thank you for your great podcasts. All of them. Seriously, you do a great work and a great service for the community. And you say the truth. Even when it's, in, when it's fucked up, and I appreciate it as it is. Thank you. Keep it up, and I'm a faithful fan. Goodbye. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, what a great call. Thank you so, so much, Avi. I think if there's one takeaway from this... I, I... It's, uh, I think that we're done here. An old lady. <laughs> I know. Basically, if you if you haven't yet listened to last week's episode with Francisco, I guess you don't really need to now because that was like the whole episode on fast forward right there. Yeah, basically, I, I counted I counted it out, and there's uh, 14 occurrences of Roberta sucks. In that. sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm sure that, that we pretty didn't, much sums uh, up Francisco's view. I'm sure we didn't mention that she was an old lady, though. So this is even more thorough than than our entire three-hour episode last Cover, week. That that covered a lot of ground. <laughs> well, yeah, I, so I, much, I, I like that he had like a whole Marxist theory of game design kind of implied there. It's like <laughs> <laughs> they did it for the money, not for the user. We love the user. Oh, that's right. And Lucas Arts is like the the working men's game company. Exactly. I can just. Uh, appear on the podcast and and some kind of Sierra bashing <laughs> isn't happening even though I'm not doing it this time don't send me any fucking threats people thank you I've had enough Sierra fans are fucking vicious <laughs> well I, I myself am a big Sierra fan but uh, a so lot of the stuff rings I true fucking, you know let's not even talk about this there, you guys had a whole podcast to talk about this and I, did, I, I talk about it on Twitter enough and I get shit for it all the time <laughs> I, I I honestly like I, because I actually didn't really say much about Sierra in the last episode. The only the only thing I'll say is I love Sierra like the way I would love you know if, if anybody any of our listeners have a dog you know one of those dogs that's twelve thirteen years old it's getting kind of getting kind of addled in the head it shits on your carpet randomly you know you 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 love it still but you you know it's on its way out so i uh i love it like i love fresca <laughs> i actually like to compare Sierra now probably to american animation series of the 80s you know all the ones that are animated in like di- 10 different studios in korea yeah like, gi joe uh, right. or he-man or even ninja teenage mutant ninja Turtles, or real ghostbusters yeah, uh, yeah like real ghostbusters shows awesome. that really t- t- it was have you seen it recently because I paid like no. $150 for that set. Well, you might want to revisit it, and you'll see oh, wow. that just like wow. all those shows, especially in the seasons, they were made for like $5 per uh, <laughs> episode. They're, they're, they're terrible. They're a lot terrible. of talented people were involved in those shows, but the overall quality, you can mostly love those shows only for nostalgic reasons. Like If you look at it with brand new eyes now, you'll see all kinds of flaws and them. So, mm-hmm. That's my my opinion. Sierra, basically, I love it dearly because that's what I grew up with. But you know, I, I can't ignore the obvious issues. Yeah, that's sure. Well, yeah. we don't really have like a barometer for comparison when we see these things for the first time and when it's the cutting edge. That's right. At the time, exactly. But uh, some things age more gracefully than others, and it's really shocking how much better the Lucas Arts games in general age better than the Sierra ones. You have to be really dedicated to make it all the way through a Sierra game nowadays. That's true. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, well, I guess that's a pretty good way to close out our uh, our <laughs> our Roberta Williams episode. Some some nice final thoughts. This is like the Jerry Springer of of podcasts. <laughs> this is Jerry's <laughs> Jerry's thoughts or whatever. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> it's like, does anybody win when parents fight? <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. I feel all warm and mushy now. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, guys, I'd love to hear what uh, you've been playing uh, this week. Uh, why don't we start with you, Anatoly? I have a feeling I know what you might what you might start with. Yeah, well, I'll start and finish it because I don't really play uh, a lot of a lot of games very often, uh, contrary to a popular belief. 
but I have played uh, through uh, Hotline Miami too, which I oh, have nice. for nearly two years. And uh, uh, I will say to me, although this game is catching a lot of criticism from what I've seen, although I don't read reviews, I actually went out and read reviews of Hotline Miami too because I've seen some low scores on from certain establishments. And I will say that those establishments can go fuck themselves. Because everything that Hotline Miami is, is, is everything I ever wanted from a Hotline Miami sequel. What, what is the overall tone of the comments from reviewers that you read? Well, uh, it catches a lot of criticism for messing with some of the game's mechanics and being a lot, lot harder uh, than the first game. Okay. Uh, and structurally confusing, and I will say that all, all those things are what exactly what I love about Hotline Miami too. Because I did not nice. want. It seems like a lot of people, even though sometimes in the same articles they contradict themselves, like they say they didn't. They, they didn't. It, it basically it looks like a lot of people who are disappointed just expected sort of Doom Two kind of sequel, just a set of new uh, levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wanted a bigger challenge, because at this point in time, I mean, I'm pretty good at Hotline Miami. I can finish the whole game in about two hours using just my fists and no weapons unless I actually need them. That's how I play. Uh, like That's how I have to create more challenge for myself in this game. Now, second game is like ten times harder than that. Cannot do that. Oh, wow. and I welcome characters that mess with the main core mechanics, and I, I like this. I, I like the fact that I, I had to really sit down and think for like an hour afterwards to piece the story together. So uh, it's, oh, well. uh, and of course, the soundtrack, I mean, everything about, and everything that was in the first Hotline Miami is just improved tenfold. It's like there's literally 49 musical tracks, Whoa. Uh, which are all amazing. Yeah, That's it's, crazy. it's a brilliant soundtrack. I mean, the first Hotline Miami probably had the best soundtrack in the game in years. And Phenomenal. The second, yes. And the second one, just, just there was a lot of expectation, right, set with that soundtrack. And with that game, so uh, like the soundtrack is is mind-blowingly amazing on the second game. I just listened to it this morning. It's like over three hours. Uh, wow! It's, it's it's great. It's amazing. So I will uh, to anybody who who likes good challenging game and who liked the first Hotline Miami and somehow held back uh, from buying it because of the negative reviews and stuff. I say don't listen to it. I mean, it's it's not that expensive and it's really really worth it. But be prepared. That game is hard. It's hard, hard, hard. Like I, for the first game, I, I was always uh, I was one of those vocal people who were like, "No, nah, it's not really that hard. It's actually kind of easy. If you find it to be too hard, you just need to find a different approach." Now for the second game, I, I can't say this. I, I will say that the second game is hard no matter what. It's really difficult, but I enjoyed it. I really, really loved it. Oh, Chris, did you play the first or second Hotline Miami? Yeah, you know what? I played the first one. Um, I got. <laughs> This is going to show how much I suck at games. I got maybe three levels in, and I was like, this is too fucking hard. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. And uh, But it was I could see it was a really good game. The I, One thing I really liked about it as a beginner was that it, it was very obvious what the correct way to solve each puzzle was when you walked into the room. It was kind of just like... See, you there is. That's what's what keeping you from progressing. Uh, in yeah, Hotline Miami. You don't you don't need to do that. That's the beauty of Hotline Miami. Sometimes it just pays to just ran, grab a grab a gun and start firing in all directions, and somehow you'll magically win. That to me, what the beauty of Hotline Miami is. People who don't progress in Hotline Miami try to play like stealthy or actiony, or they right. think there's a certain way. There is never a certain way. There is never ever is a certain way. Do whatever. Mm. If, if you well, it's to... it's randomized to a degree too, isn't it? The placement of enemies in the patrols no, and stuff no, like that. No, it's not. It's the way the 
the way random enemies patrol, they kind of bounce off walls. It's a, it's a game maker game, so if interaction is very... Oh, I didn't decent, realize so. it was game maker. Yeah, it's probably so, like the most complex game maker game that's ever, that's ever come nah, out. No, not really. There's a lot yeah. of like, probably the most successful financially, but certainly not the most complex technically. There's all kinds that's of those uh, area shooters with all kinds of shader effects and 3D things going around, so... Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so there's there and there's even like on I think on PSV there there's like a first person shooter made in game maker. Oh no uh, shit! Really? Relatively successful. Wow. So uh, you know, cause, uh, so there's that. But yeah, Hotline Miami is probably the biggest, really, especially the second game now, um, which like shot to number two sales on on Steam like instantaneously. Yeah, it uh, sure did. The day it came out. So, um, but yeah, so there's that. It's not really that. That to me, like to me, that's beauty of playing Hotline Miami. Like sometimes you just, you just, you just. You get caught in like trying some path and trying to play stealthy, knocking out people with doors and crushing them and like planning out your next move. And most of the time, when that happens, you get like so frustrated after a 20th attempt that just don't do that. Just go for it. Just go for it. Jump through a window or 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 like throw a gun in somebody's face and just try to like try to dive into the corner and try to like sort of like grab 10 guns and fire them in, in all directions. And guess what? There is a good chance that you will clear the level that way. And Right. Adrenaline rush will be like nothing you've ever experienced in a game. It's crazy. <laughs> awesome. It is a really frenetic game, and I can totally see the appeal of it, but I feel like the kind of people that I've spoken to that have played The Binding of Isaac and just aren't into that, because that is also right. a very punishing game that, you know, you have one life and that's it. It's even more yeah, punishing, I guess, because with Hotline Miami, different. you die, yeah, you start like Hotline again. Hotline Miami, I don't think Hotline Miami is punishing. You, you'll respawn as many times as you want. It's just like, it, it can get frustrating when you can't make it past a certain section, but I'm telling you, it's only because it, it, it's it, it's you. It's not... When oh, yes. For you, it's totally, like, it, it it's you not sticking to a certain approach. Like, Biden of Isaac is a fucking legitimately hard game. Like, I'll mm. say Biden of Isaac is a lot harder than Hotline Miami. Oh, I don't think so, because Binding of Isaac, I don't know, I'm sure they're probably pretty equal, because, I mean, the more you play the game, the more you realize the the patterns and the, you know, the, the, the various strategies that work universally and specific strategies for certain kinds of enemies, and I think Hotline Miami is probably the same way, but uh, it's all it all kind of comes down to whether it clicks with you, because I... It's um, Binding of Isaac is totally the kind of game that I can see myself getting fed up with in five minutes, but there's just something that clicked with me that compelled me to keep going and going, and now I've put I don't know how many hundreds of hours into the original and the sequel. I've seen, I, I've seen your I've seen you uh, when I f- first you friended me on Steam. I looked at your uh, stats and your profile, and you like fell off my chair. I, I think you've played Binding of Isaac more than I have played all my Steam games combined. It could very well be. <laughs> Could very I don't think it's like an exaggeration. Awesome. I think that's actually true. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. It's the perfect game to play when you're watching something, or I, I uh, when I exercise in the morning, I play that too, because it just kind of uses barely enough of your concentration that you can do something else at the same time. So it's uh, a perfect, perfect attention consumer. Right. <laughs> All right. So thumbs up for Hotline Miami Two from Anatolia. I take it. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, why don't you go next? What have you been playing this week? Oh, I've been playing some really cool stuff. So, I um, I think I mentioned last time I've been playing Plundered Hearts, which is just an amazing game. Um, oh, by I got the way, really... I have a little little. Uh, sorry, sorry to butt in. Yeah. But I thought you guys yeah, yeah, mentioned, go but uh, uh, did you know it was mentioned in the video interviews between Tim Schafer and Ron Gilbert that the lady who did Plundered Hearts 
uh, was Ron Gilbert's babysitter at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really? right. Amy, Amy Briggs. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Wow, that's a coincidence. I, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, two um, pirates of games. games. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> but um, yeah, I played some Plundered Hearts. Um, I got really stuck in it. Uh, it's an incredibly well designed and well written game. Um, but when you hit, like, that's one of the problems with Infocom games is when you hit, when you hit a roadblock or you hit a dead end, you're really fucked. It's not like, I found graphical adventures, um, just by, by their nature, tend to, um, have a lot of situations where if you sit on it for two or three days, you'll eventually think of a solution or maybe you'll just try everything, right? You'll, you'll try combining every goddamn inventory item and um, eventually something's going to work. But the problem is, in Infocom text adventures, you can't try everything. You, there's no way you're going to try every combination of text imaginable. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes you just can't think your way out of the puzzle. So I got stuck in that, and I switched over to, uh, in celebration of uh, Wadjadai's big win uh, <laughs> last week, uh, two weeks ago at GDC, uh, to, Brian, uh, to, is it Brian Moriarty? Yeah. Um, yeah, Brian Moriarty's uh, Trinity. Uh, either of you familiar with that game? No, yes, I'm not. I am, uh, although uh, I, just like with case with most Infocom adventures, I haven't actually gotten far like ever in those. I, I need to revisit a lot of these. Yeah, I, this is so. This is a new one for me. I've played a, I've played a couple of Infocom text adventures before, but I generally. You know, peter out about halfway through the game. I finished a few too, but this one, just like, oh man, it's just mind blowing. You start off the theme of it. I think I told you, Brian, earlier this week. The theme is, you know, it's post-apocalyptic, but it's something that I've rarely seen done in games um, where you actually witness the apocalypse, um, like first person, which is just fucking mind blowing because it's nothing like. You know, it's not it's not a zombie apocalypse, which is the most tired thing on Earth now. Mm -hmm. um, it is a uh, it is some sort of political apocalypse. Basically, it's like nukes just get set off. But the thing is, you're on this vacation. This won't ruin anything because it's basically the first five minutes of the game. You're on vacation in London. You're about to fly back home. You go for a walk somewhere in somewhere in London, UK. I, I I'm sure our British listeners would know this location. Um, in a gar in these gardens. And as you're walking around these gardens, um, you start to... It, it's the craziest thing. Standard text adventure interface, except that while you're walking around inspecting stuff, picking stuff up, you occasionally get these little black dialogue boxes that pop up. And they're inscribed with this cryptic kind of doomsday stuff that came from like all of these poets or writers or... Nostradamus, et cetera, et cetera, and they just randomly pop up, and you're just like, what the fuck? Like, what, what's that about? And then there's this great moment. You go to this, you go to this pond, and you see these little, um, this paper crane floating in the pond. You pick it up, you open up the paper crane, and there's a message. And it says, long water, 4 p.m. And you're just like, what's going on? And I'm like, okay, look at watch. It's like, it is now 3.58 p.m. So I start walking around, and each time you progress, one minute passes, and at 4 p.m., all of a sudden, these, like, air raid sirens go off. And it, it's so weird. Text adventures are amazing at this. They can scare the shit out of me way, way better than any graphical ad adventure games ever managed to. Because 
I don't know, just the way that it's written, it makes you feel like all of a sudden, all of a sudden you hear gunfire breaking out, and then you see this missile streaking into the sky. And basically, unless you manage to escape from this garden, at that point, game's over. You know, you die in the apocalypse. You're basically just, uh, you know, rendered to dust by this uh, nuclear wasteland uh, bomb that goes off. Um, it is just like, it is like a terrifying two minutes where you're scrambling to hide. I was literally going from room to room going, hide here, hide there. It's like there's no place to hide, or there's screaming people running past you. You can't seem to get by them, blah, blah. And it's just an absolutely terrifying experience. So, yeah, and then the cool thing is once you actually manage to escape the apocalypse, the, I, I love this. This is like a good technique for all you adventure game developers. Um, the Last of Us makes it use of the exact same thing. They don't show you the title screen of the game until 15 to 20 minutes into the game. Mm -hmm. So basically, the moment that you survive the apocalypse, all of a sudden the screen goes black and it goes Trinity. And you wake up in this other world, basically. So, uh, yeah, I, I've got nothing but amazing things to say about that game. I, I got stuck already. I'm, I'm about, uh, I don't know, maybe 20% into the game. But... Um, I'm just, yeah, Brian Moriarty's a genius at whatever he did in it, and it's very unlike any other text adventure I've played. That sounds really intense. I mean, it's especially cool to think of how immersive you're describing this game that's not only completely textual, but also like a turn-based game. So it's really yeah. something to think of that there's like this sense of presence and immediacy with the things that you're describing. Yeah, that's that's like the best possible way to put it. It's like just presence and immediacy. And I think one trick they used, or one trick he used, was to the the clock counts down or counts upwards, I should say, very quickly. So each move is one minute. So every time you can, and it has this terrible pressure at the start of the game where, so you've died three times, you're like, okay, I get it. At 4 p.m. there's an apocalypse. But you've got 15 minutes to do everything you need in to, to, to get your life ready to to find the right inventory items to, to help the right people in that first 15 minutes. And you really like, it's, it's scary. Like I was actually sitting up in the middle of the night saying like, Oh man, this is like, this is like what a real apocalypse probably would feel like um, way more so than like, even though I love the last of us is, you know, 15 minute intro. Um, that one doesn't feel half as real as, uh, as Trinity does. Well, that's terrific. And I mean, this game must've been from when, like 80, 82, 83, yeah, that's my best guess. Maybe eighty-five at the latest. Oh, that's awesome! Like, it's just crazy to think that that you can pull something like this off at such an early time. And nowadays, whenever there's some kind of an apocalypse apocalypse game, you never ever see Ground Zero as it's happening. You always right. get like audio logs, or you find little letters that people have written. Uh, exactly. It, it's uh, just so liberating, I guess, to just this medium of text adventure that enables you to conjure up whatever kind of imagery an action you need to without having to worry about what it looks like or sounds like or production values or anything like that. It's just something yeah. that one person can do. Exactly. And it's just got, it's, it, the pacing is so well done for, it's just, it just has that, that sense that, Oh, something bad's going to happen. You better get your shit together fast. And, um, and you know, dying in it and it's kind of annoying. You basically just, you, you know, you basically die over and over and over again until you find a way to escape the gardens. But yeah, so um, anybody who's into Infocom games, anybody who's an adventure game developer, if you want a master class in pacing, it's the first 15 minutes of Trinity. Um, mm. Just 
don't don't use a walkthrough. Don't cheat your way through it. Just really, it's a very simple intro. You'll eventually figure it out. Um, it'll teach you how to effectively pace the beginning of a game to pull your player right into the action, even if nothing... It's funny, because nothing's happening. In the first 15 minutes, it's just like you're wandering around the gardens. You see some ducks. You feed the ducks. You, you know, da-da-da-da. But it all of a sudden just like the pressure's on all of a sudden and it makes you it makes you just feel like you're there so yeah thumbs up that's re- i'm i'm really kind of struck by you uh praising pacing of a game that is not only turn based but also a game that you kind of describe as learning from failure learning from mistakes and having to repeat the first bit over and over like to to still praise yeah, the pacing yeah. that's really impressive well, yeah, because, you know, I think it's Francisco and Ben complained about pacing is very, very difficult in adventure games, graphical adventure games, because you mm-hmm. don't have control over the player's choices, right? Um, yeah. But this basically, uh, I, could, I could go on forever, so I'll move, <laughs> I'll move on to um, Broken Sword. Um, in my ongoing kind of weird love-hate relationship with this game, I don't even want to call it love-hate. It's more like, ah, this is going to make me sound like a horrible human being, it's more like you start dating somebody, but you're not really sure if you like them, and you just decide to keep the relationship going because you're sleeping together. So, <laughs> so. I get you. <laughs> it's like it's it's good enough. Yeah, it's good enough. You know, it's it's satisfactory, it's, and, I, and it's beautifully. You know, the the music's wonderful. The animation's, yeah. of course, amazing. The settings are great, but there's like some parts of it where I just kind of like. I just want to snore my way through it. Like, there's basically every single room of that game is an escape the room puzzle where you have to get a key for a door. Mm-hmm. And it's just so exhausting to basically try com- combining... Uh, I've complained about this game way too many times on the podcast, but basically the only... Th- I finally had a solid good laugh the other day when um, there's a puzzle where you go to Syria and you um, see that the... Um, shish kebab vendor um, is using a toilet brush to baste his shish kebabs. Have you guys played that puzzle? <laughs> I don't remember. It's been a while. That's You paint a good picture of it. <laughs> well, uh, basically, at some point, you say something really awful and offensive to him, like basically you're cooking dog meat, uh, something like that, or, or your food tastes like dog meat. I can't remember what it was. And I just died laughing from how bad the voiceover was. Like they, they, it's like the most racist voiceover of all time. It's like "you bad" kind of thing, and <laughs> I was just dying laughing from, from like just these, these crazy, like over the top stereotypes of culture. Which it's weird because I, I, I would never want to criticize the game for it because it's it's, it's the game is so over the top anyway that all these like stereotyped cultural references actually kind of fit the game in some terrible, pathetic way. Yeah, it's very but, caricatured. Yeah, exactly. Every every character is caricatured, like you know the police officers to Nico herself and to you know um, uh, the main character. What's his George. name? George. George. Yeah. Yeah, he's George. totally a stereotype of the American bumbling. Exactly, yeah, and he's got like these super blue eyes and blonde hair, he must come from <laughs> California. Uh, but yeah, it's funny, it's like, I really have to say that I'm liking it, but every time I just kind of like, just feel like snoring my way through the puzzles, because they're just, they're just awful. The, the game is 95% inventory puzzles. Oh, it totally is, and every time you pick up something new, I don't know if it's because I was bad at the game or what, but I found that every time I pick something up, you basically have to go and talk about it to everyone you've ever yeah, met to everyone. all over the exactly. damn world. Oh, it's irritating. 
here's the thing uh, with Broken Sword. First, I, I know you you said uh, I I think I previously heard that you you played in the director's cut, right? Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, they added some stuff, right? Yeah, that's that's bad. Yeah, um, and, <laughs> yeah I, I'm uh, not playing the director's cut right now. I'm I'm pretty sure oh. I'm playing the original. Mm. Yeah, and uh, also if you ever want to see, like, I only recently caught up with the. There's a GDC Europe. Uh, there's a postmortem on Broken Sword featuring who else? Oh, you're kidding! Ch- yeah, Chart Cecil, and it's three hours of Chart Cecil jerking himself off. Oh. Basically, <laughs> yeah. he's a strange man. That guy. He's singing like such praises to himself. Uh, it's like like fucking Broken Sword is the second coming of Christ. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. So that might explain quite a few things about those games. That sounds more yeah. interesting than the subject matter, to tell you the truth. Uh, I was just going to say, that sounds like the, the best GDC Art Vault episode ever. You know what the yeah. weird thing is? I That's the second time this week I've heard somebody use the phrase jerking himself off for two hours in was... reference to a GDC talk. <laughs> I don't, I'd say trolls probably do it, but... Uh... <laughs> sounds like something he'd say. No, it was actually a friend of mine who lives here locally who went to GDC. Uh, shout out to our, our friend Doug who who used that phrase in reference to uh, I, to an I will not name the uh, person who was doing the GDC talk on the air. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, and, and I know you're listening. So um, yeah, uh, that's awesome. I uh, I think I, ca- I can't wait to see. I've never even is Charles Cecil is he is he English French. He's, He's French, yeah? No, English? Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, I could never really gather... It feels like a very European game to me, which is why I like it so much. Well, it's mm. a British game, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. All right, so last one I played, Ultima, all, all I'm going to say is Ultima 7, PSP, the best port of any game I've ever seen in my entire life. Really? Uh, the developer who did this is the most shocking, impressive human being I've ever laid eyes on or haven't laid eyes on. Wow. Uh, That's not a very powerful machine, is it? No. I think it's like a 200 megahertz tops. Holy crap. tops. Uh, single, single, uh, uh, what's it called? Single, uh, single chip. Core? Um, single, Core? Sing, single, uh, yeah, uh, blah, blah, blah. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this guy has managed to squeeze out not only proper support for the MT32, um, the MP32 sounds with, you know, it's all saved as augs. Um, I was watching my girlfriend play it, and he's he's basically custom patched Exalt to um, run on the PSP's native resolution. He's got all of the filters working. It's just like, and the best part is, the PSP is not the most ergonomic of con- like uh, controllers. It's basically up, down, left, right, and then four buttons. Um, and an analog stick, but this guy has somehow figured out this perfect interface magic so that you're using your thumb, you're basically using, sorry, the shoulder buttons as shift keys to, or, or control keys to activate other buttons. He squeezed an entire keyboard somehow into a PSP. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. Hmm. So, oh, is it sort yeah. of a thing where, like, you hold down one button and then use the analog stick in one direction, and that's a letter or something, or... Yeah, exactly. You basically, uh, yeah, you pick and then you have, um, there's a certain word for this kind of interface where you have like um, a matrix of like A, B, C, D, and if you press up, you get A, if you press left, you get C, if you press down, you get B, if you press right, you get D. So 
Yeah, you, you only have to use the keyboard for a couple of spots in that game, basically for save games, uh, that kind of stuff, or I think there's one or two puzzles that might use a keyboard. But for the rest of it, like, you know, Ultima 7 uses tons of keyboard keys just to do basic things like open the map, and he's remapped it perfectly to the PSP's uh, um, buttons. And, oh, I could just go on forever. It is like an absolutely gorgeous port, and anybody who has a PSP, I would... I, I, was, I was thinking about it last night. I was almost tempted to say this might be better than playing it on a PC. Holy smokes. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like borderline. I think there's a lot of things that the PS, uh, PC version has going for it, but there's so much more that the PSP's got. Plus, you get to play it on a handheld. Like, it's just, it looks, it looks beautiful. So, yeah, thumbs up, Ultima 7 PSP. Go play it if you have a PSP. It's just, it's a no-brainer. That's really impressive. Yeah, those those DOS games look incredible on smaller screen devices. I find like I had yeah uh, I have the older um, Nintendo DS with a flash card uh, reader cartridge, nice. and I was able to put Scum VM on there and play like fully voiced uh, CD-ROM games on there. And because wow. it's like a three inch screen or whatever, it looks so sharp and so so beautiful. Plus, that thing had the uh, stylus touch controls, which is kind of a nice uh, replacement for the Yeah, no mouse. kidding. It's pretty much a perfect uh, interface system. Wow. It is, unless you need to right-click, and then you have to like hold a button while you tap, because there's no right-click, there's just like a oh, tap, and there's right. no hovering. Gotcha. All you can do is tap to click. You can't hover the mouse. But it right. works very, very well, and it's beautiful like that. Cool. Yeah. Anatoly, have you had a chance to do any emulation with uh, handheld devices of DOS stuff? Uh, I just uh, I have Scum VM on my, on my uh, tablet in my in my in my my phone previously, and uh, I never use them. But it it was fun to play around with initially when I actually got those devices. I mean, it's Scum VM, so it runs really well on just about anything. That's a great yeah, emulator, exactly. but it's not ideal playing it on anything but PC. I find like that's wherever I play it, I just do it, it because I can. But I'd I'd rather play yeah. it on the PC. It's a convenience Especially thing, like definitely. I play like television games, so right-clicking is a must. So it kind of like on Android, it's mapped to the menu button. So mm. not an idea. Right. Cool. So uh, what have you been playing, Brian? Anything new and exciting? Uh, sort of. Oh, um, bef well, uh, before I, I talk about what I'm playing, by the way, because we mentioned uh, GDC again, oh, um, yeah. I, I wanted to advise all of our listeners to check out the Blue Cup Tools podcast number... 68, I think it is, where uh, Francisco's talking about his recent trip, uh, having visited uh, GDC uh, the previous yes, week. absolutely. Um, we already gave him a, a shout-out and our congratulations for him speaking with Brian Moriarty and uh, getting such phenomenal praise from him. But to hear Francisco tell the story himself, that just, like, really rocked my socks. Um, I don't yeah, know whether you guys have heard that, but he's so, he just gets emotional. And, like, it's it's an amazing moment. Like, I can sort of think of the very few times in my life where I feel quite so accomplished is that. Maybe I can't even. I mean, I, I've never had any praise like that from somebody quite so important about something that I, like, dedicated my life to and, like, risked my finances and took a big leap of faith. And it's just awesome to, to I think hear it, yeah. him tell it himself. I was just yeah, it's a great say, episode you know, of a great podcast. Great podcast. Yeah, I um, I was thinking about those same kind of things, too. You know, people who are developers of any kind, you know, in software, um, you know, rarely get any kind of praise for what they do. You know, basically people either buy your product or they won't, or, you know, you might get a couple of random, you know, uh, reviews online which say, you know, it was good in this way, bad in this way, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, yeah, to get to get real respect from somebody in the industry is just amazing. And, yeah, I was... 
I got a little misty-eyed listening to that podcast. It was great. Yeah, so did I. I'm all the more proud of the guy. He he worked he worked very hard, and he really put his uh, soul into this important project, uh, personally important project, and it obviously paid off. Like it's confirmation that he's going the right way. So good for you, Francisco. Really proud of you. Exactly. Although he never asked Brian Moriarty if he actually paid for a Golden Lake or if he pirated it. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point. How nefarious! <laughs> all right, we take it all back. Cool. So what have I been playing? I um I I started playing again a game that I have tried. Uh oh. Oh hello. Hello, Brian disappeared. Oh this no. Stupid, oh, this stupid uh, <laughs> headset of mine has this like mute button on the cord, and while I'm flailing around speaking with uh, all of my heart, I sometimes <laughs> whack the button. Sorry. So. <laughs> Um, this is a, a game that I've I've uh, kept trying uh, to to get into, and uh, it's a false start, and I lose interest in it. This game is called Dishonored by oh. Arcane Studios. I've heard many many good things about Dishonored. I've heard a million good things about Dishonored, and it's super super beautiful. Like the art direction is, I can't remember the name of the guy. He was the lead art director for Half Life Two. Right, and you can, right. A Russian guy, I believe. I can't remember his name, but his uh, his trademarks are like all over it. There's all these like really tall buildings and these kind of angular geometric uh, uh, patterns that you see in brick walls, oh. and uh, I don't know, just a, a great sense of scale where you're this little tiny person in this big kind of narrow, towering sort of a city. So. Cool. Uh, this game, it's like a first-person combat and stealth game, or I should probably reorder those as stealth and combat, and this is probably why it didn't really strike a chord with me uh, initially. But it's like, you know, you start off with a, you start off with story, um, you are this um, assassin slash kind of, not a head of state, but just some important political kind of a person, and uh, you're coming back from a big trip. Uh, by ship, uh, you've been charged with speaking to other uh, kingdoms and uh, areas, uh, municipalities, to try to get some help for your people who are suffering from some kind of a rat plague that's killing people, yes. you know, predominantly uh, poor people. Um, and so you're coming back kind of empty-handed. Nobody's helped you, and uh, you uh, happen to come back a couple of days early, and you you're kind of like the in the the wrong place at the right time, as they call it, because there's this assassination of the uh, head of state, uh, some some woman, I can't remember her name, and uh, they frame you, and so just when you're about to be executed a few months later, uh, you're broken out by some rebels, and you have to go and clear your name and work for the rebels and go get the bad guys, that kind of stuff. So, uh, at its essence, it's a first-person stealth game, but you can upgrade your abilities, and you can kind of put points either into being stealthier or into being more proficient with uh, melee weapons and uh, I think some uh, ranged weapons as well. Uh, it does have a lot of similarities to a previous game that they made, which was called Dark Messiah of Might and Magic. You guys ever oh, tried really? that one? I, I did actually play Dark Messiah. I, I thought it was, you know, to be honest, pretty underrated. I really like that game a lot. That was yeah. one of the few uh, Source Engine games. And they did cool stuff with physics, and uh, it had a great, a great setting. It was kind of like the, the tally ho superhero of uh, medieval, uh, medieval fame, and you could be either like a thief or a, a warrior or a mage, or you can mix your points a little bit. So this one kind of is similar to that, in that you can spec your character with different points, and you can mix and match a little bit. You have these right. magical powers, blah blah blah. So 
I'm not. I don't really enjoy stealth games that much, and I can totally see how this game really uh, wants you to play it stealthily. But that's exactly what failed to uh, capture my interest the several uh, previous times. So I'm kind of being more smashy, smashy this time, and it's a little bit more interesting. But it's I just kind of it... not doing it for me somehow. Um, Anatoly, have you played this game? What? I'm sorry. What? Uh, have Dishonored? you? Have you played uh, no. Dishonored? Uh, I. I think uh, I have not. I don't have anything that can run it, but I've seen uh, my best friends, and I'm also I'm not too sure, but I think certain people who were involved with Thief and uh, original that's Thief right two and, yeah. and System Shock two were involved in this, yeah right? yeah so, that's right. Exactly. There used to be Blue Sky slash um, uh, Looking oh, Glass. What did Blue Sky become Looking Glass. That's right. They became yeah. Arcane Studios. They made Arx Fatalis, which that's is a right. spiritual successor to Ultima Underworld, and then they made. Dark Messiah of Might and Magic, and interestingly, I didn't even know this, they were um, they were contracted by Valve to make Half-Life 2 Episode 4, which... Oh, shit! Yeah, which they got, I think, like, halfway through or so before Valve decided to scrap it, because they were doing such a crappy job of completing oh, their no. own Episode 3. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a disaster. That would have been a really interesting game. I know. The, uh, the Arcane one was going to be called Return to Ravenholm, but... Uh, oh, man. I don't know. If, they, if you're... The other episodes had returns to previous environments, too, so if they're skipping yet another return to a rehashed environment from Half-Life 2, then I'm not really that sorry. I'd rather they go onward and upward. Yeah, but no no. They're thing. an amazingly capable studio. They make beautiful, beautiful stuff, very tight engines, yeah. really enjoyable combat, and especially impressive because of how variable your character is and how many different ways you can accomplish your goals. Uh, as, l as long as your goal is done, it doesn't really care how it's done, so it's a little bit sandboxy. Right. But uh, still a good degree of polish and a lot of rewards for choosing different alternative uh, solutions to those problems. So that much I appreciate. I'd love to get through it just to see the story and just to see the sights and hear the sounds and all, because it's a really lush, lavish, beautiful game to look at and to inhabit. But uh, yeah, I, I'm pushing um, myself. I've got a bit of an inside track with Dishonored. I haven't played it yet, but um, I had plenty of friends who went on for hours about how amazing it was and one thing that might i don't know if i can sway you towards doing a little bit more stealth but um i don't know, don't know if you're aware of this but the actual world changes according to the choices you're making oh i didn't know that yeah i'm, sure I'm not far enough to know that that's pretty cool yeah so the world's going to change according to how many people you kill how many um you know basically how bad of a person you're being the, the world yeah, you're basically going to get a shit and change <laughs> What's that, Anatoly? If you're gonna if you're gonna play like an action uh, whatever thing, you're gonna get a shitty ending. Yeah, exactly. The way I'm playing yeah. it, it's gonna be a very lonely ending because I'm gonna be the only That's one right. left. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but the the world itself is gonna physically change. I think I remember Francisco even mentioning that um, he went through a second playthrough, and places that were just overloaded with rats on his first playthrough were completely clean and beautiful. The second playthrough. Mm. So oh, that's really neat. Yeah, so often really with a game cool. like this, if I do force myself to finish it and I end up enjoying it in the end, I'll come back and it, the stealthy stuff doesn't feel quite so onerous uh, to me if I already kind of know what's coming or if right. I've seen the mechanics already and I sort right. of have the idea for it. Like, the AI isn't particularly that intelligent. I can figure out how to do the stealth, the stealth stuff, especially because one of your powers is that you can see through walls for a limited time right. so you can see when the people are patrolling. I just don't find that very... Engaging, I I think it's kind of silly. It's like, uh, it's like it's like um, programming in Logo to me. You're just like, 
you're, you're, you want to see what the exact path is that the turtle follows, and then you want to kind of sneak behind the turtle. That's sort of how I see it, and I, I don't find that particularly interesting. It's like I'm a computer program, and I have to subject yeah. myself to these rigid parameters. I, so. uh, I I was a bigger fan of the Thief style. Um, I'm a huge fan of Thief and Thief 2. Thief, um, Thief 2 is amazing. Oh, yeah. It's like that, that, that game only has love to offer. Fuck. It's like the... It took everything I liked in Thief and then polished it and made it perfect. Yes. Thief 2 is like oh. one of the best games PC games ever made, certainly. Well, see, I don't like those games because they are so stealthy. I just find yeah, them very stressful and I'm really crappy at them. Yeah, they're they're really loaded with stealth, but yeah, there's and that's interesting. But it does get rid of the one thing you don't like, which is it doesn't have the logo script issue. Um, <laughs> you know, well, you it doesn't. Can, it doesn't. Again, it doesn't really restrict you to anything. Here's the thing: it's like it yeah, exactly. Just like do do whatever the hell you want, and it's beautiful because uh, unlike in the new Thief game, the freedom is com- complete. Like you, you have rope arrows that can that you can put into like any wooden surface to climb them. So the whole level That's is right. a playground, and, and it's, it's played the best without saving. Just play like on a normal difficulty without saving. It's like the most intense thing ever. Was that a game where if you play on a higher difficulty, then it doesn't even let you save, or you have limited saves? Uh, you are not allowed right? to kill people. Uh, uh, okay. It becomes a lot harder. Like the, yeah. the normal... It's, it's almost impossible in hard mode. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a hell of a talented studio, and I really can't wait to see what they do next. There's a there's a journalist that I uh, whose career I followed for quite some time by the name of Sean Elliott. He used to work for Games for Windows magazine, which was Computer Gaming uh-huh. World magazine before that, but I don't know if he was there at the time. He's just a really funny, snarky guy. I follow him on Twitter, too, and he posts the most wonderful and horrible things on there. But uh, he went on to work for Irrational Games and helped with Bioshock Infinite oh. and became a level designer. He went from being a writer to a level designer. He's oh, a really shit. multi-talented guy, and now he works for Arcane in Texas, I think. That's so I'm really looking forward to what he has to say because he used to review uh, first-person shooters and particularly some so both single-player and multiplayer stuff, and he would always have these really poignant things to say about the what worked and what didn't in level design and what would... Uh, what would uh, open up new possibilities for him because he loves to troll people and he loves to break games and to be disobedient in games. He's a real right. tinkerer. So he would always have high praise for games that would allow him to tinker and still succeed. That's awesome. Yeah, Thief, Thief is definitely... In fact, almost all of the Arcane Studio games are like that. Um, yeah. I have, the, I have the feeling Dishonored's one of the more locked-down ones compared to the previous stuff. I loved... I, I, oh, I'm going to go too far off topic, but Dark... Uh, Messiah of Might and Magic had some really awesome, just, there was just so many ways to win battles in that game. That's what I really liked. There were, but you had the most unbelievably overpowered kick in that game where you could kick <laughs> yeah. someone and they go like eight feet backwards. Well, flying you could... across the room, yeah. It was hilarious, though. If you feel like exploiting it, like just like Anatoly said about trying to initially, like intentionally make the game harder for yourself, you just avoid pressing that button if you don't want to press the win button. Because that's basically the win button. <laughs> you kick someone off a ledge or you kick them into the spikes or something. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I forgot about that. That's awesome. Cool. So anyway, that's, that's Dishonor. The only other thing that I really did of note this week was uh, playing with the Adventure Game Studio tutorial where I've been uh, trying to teach myself how to make adventure games. Again, oh, awesome. I, I, I tried this tutorial about a year ago or so and I kind of lost the uh, the will to go on with it, but uh, I'm, I'm determined now to at least make it through the tutorial and that's see fantastic. how it goes. Is it, uh, really is it a Sierra-style tutorial or a LucasArts-style kind of game? 
Oh, yeah. They sort of do a little bit of mix and matching. I, I would say at its essence, it's more of a Sierra style, because with Adventure Game Studio, I think you can do, like, the Sierra style, where you have, um, you right-click to cycle through different icons, or at the top okay. you can choose which of the interaction icons you want, or there's LucasArts style, which has verbs, or you can use, like, a verb coin or something. Right. Or there's, like, Mist style, where you don't see your character at all, and you can click around in the environments. It's got, like, every kind of adventure game idea that I can think of, which is nice, every kind of interaction, which I love. So, it, yeah, the tutorial is the more Sierra style. So I just made, like, uh, one room, and you can uh, walk around, you can walk behind some things, if you run into the wall, then it stops you, because there's uh, clipping, or what, uh, what do you call it, collision detection. Right. Um, and if you walk into a door, I don't know how you go into another room yet, but if you walk into a door and you walk onto a hot spot, then it tells you something. And I also put a humongous uh, slice of pie on the ground. So you can look at the pie, and if you look at the pie, then you walk to a certain uh, to certain coordinates in the screen before it gives you your message. So I'm sort of it's very enlightening, just kind of seeing all these little elements and how much like handcrafted detail you have to have behind every little interaction. That, so yeah, very that's, that's one thing about AGS is yeah, it's definitely driven. Uh, I mean, AGS can be made to be a little bit more procedural, but for the most part, every single hotspot, every single object. Has been handcrafted by, by, you know, by specific X and Y coordinates that you know they tell the character to walk to, you know, 328 comma 255, and mm. and one of the, oh one nice trick you're going to learn with it is a fantastic one. Have you learned the difference between blocking and non-blocking uh, movement? Uh, sounds familiar. What is that again? It's basically when you set your walk mode in AGS, you can tell it to either wrestle control away from the player so that the player's just watching a scripted cinematic, or you can let the player kind of uh, interact while the walk is happening. So it's basically, if you turn on blocking mode, it blocks the player from doing anything, so you can create a pre-scripted cinematic in AGS, and it's really fast and simple. You know, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to, um, you don't have to turn on a, a cutscene or something like that. Sorry, you just say walk that direction and make it blocking so that the players uh, uh, refrains from from changing their direction or something. So yeah, it's super. It's a super extendable system. Well, that sounds exactly like the sort of thing I want to get into because I want to do you know something story based where with dialogue or with the, you know you you do one little action and it sets off a series of interactions or a series of movements or a little soliloquy or something like that. I don't exactly. really know what kind of a story I want to tell yet. I was encouraged by a game developer from Toronto by the name of Will O'Neill who made oh uh, cool who made yeah, Sunlight. That's right. I love that game so 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 much. Um, he encouraged me, if I'm learning a new engine, to take a game I've already written and to put that into the oh, new engine, just so that I'm great. already familiar with it and I don't have to wrestle with not only the engine but also like the design considerations of how like you mechanically make a puzzle work or something. Yeah, I'm kind of turned off by this idea, but I I totally see how it would be a good way to learn the engine before I, I trouble myself with other stuff, because <laughs> my my will to continue is finite, and I don't want to frustrate myself with too many fronts at the same time. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, but for now I'm doing the tutorial. That's awesome. Yeah, so very rewarding stuff. I love doing that stuff. I would love to make more games, and I would love to use tools that can tell my story better and will be a little more accessible to audiences than like a text parser or text adventure sort of a thing, because nobody wants to play that. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <sighs> So, so that's sorry, what I've been playing. Sorry that we've basically demolished all of our uh, text adventure listeners, all, all zero of you. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, now they're all text adventure listeners, thanks to thanks to our weekly chats. <laughs> all right, folks, is that as much as we have been playing this week? Shall we proceed on to our our big fat topic of the week? Hell yeah! Mm-hmm. All right. So we're especially lucky to have Anatoly along to discuss this topic because it's uh, one that he's a little bit more familiar than Chris and I combined and multiplied by 43. That would be <laughs> games that are made with Macromedia Director. Um, Anatoly, why don't you take it away and tell us a little bit about what this tool is, and then we'll talk a little bit about the products that have been made with it. All right. Well, it's nice to actually finally be able to talk about this because... Uh, since it's uh, hashtag not DOS, uh, I I don't I don't get to talk about these games often, and that's actually another sort of interest of mine. I think Chris and I at one point discussed like making some kind of an online archive for those things, because th- these things are disappearing quickly. And like, look, I couldn't even remember that many of them, and there's like hundreds of them. I couldn't yeah. even find a damn list of what had been made. There with is, it. it's there, so is frustrating. No, there is no list. Um, there there never was, and I doubt there ever will be unless we start one. But uh, Hard topic to research. It is, and some things are so obscure, and a lot of those things literally disappeared, and nobody will ever find them ever again. But uh, the um, uh, basically, this what, is basically uh, something that Jason Scott hasn't even archived either. Oh wow! Well, so you know it's obscure. Well, it's it's more like uh, you know there there's certain things that have been uploaded to Internet Archive that pertain to it. So uh, mm. it yeah. just not have has not been identified as a specific field. But I always right. have a fascination with it. Well, basically, here I go. Uh, the uh, Macromedia Director is a sort of visual presentation tool. Uh, it, it's made up of this sort of timeline thing where you can have backgrounds and active objects, sort of like, uh, well, Macromedia Flash style, if, if, if anybody's uh, Adobe Flash now, uh, is, uh, uh, if anybody's familiar how that works. And very early on, it also had this scripting language called Lingo uh, integrated. Oh, into right, it. Lingo. Yeah, which is like really stupid and something that I hate where you sort of type up sort of sentences that supposed to sound like human understandable language but really not but it's yeah. like, like SQL like, sort of yeah well it's like go to slide whatever if uh, object is you literally type up the whole sentences and I always was against those things but hey uh, whatever so it's it's made for to be presentations uh, to 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 make presentations like you know the PowerPoint sort of stuff but a bit more interactive and conditional than that now, most people don't know this, but that product existed that product existed since nineteen eighty five. Whoa. That's crazy. Yeah, it was originally called uh, Macromedia uh Video Works and uh was released for the original Macintosh and uh, nobody wow. gave a fuck because it was Macintosh in the eighties. So well, uh, plus Macintosh had hypercard, which kinda has some similarities, doesn't it? Uh yeah. yeah that's uh, but uh, it, it was moderately successful and I think came on one floppy, which at that point was pretty impressive and had all kinds of um, uh, sort of that I, I guess it was somewhat popular for them to continue making it and actually other MicroMind products. Well, it, it was like a little its own cult thing until uh, something very important uh, happens in the early 90s and that uh, is the release of, release of Myst, a game... Uh, a shitty one uh, that that was um, made by people who were not into games um, uh, that designed everything on Macs and made it d- using a different presentation software, which was HyperCard. And this was massively successful. Uh, and right around that time, around 92 or 93, 
Macromind uh, uh, director at that point, version 3 comes out, uh, uh, and its update uh, 3.1 gets renamed, they get renamed to uh, Macromedia at that point, and that is the version uh, that offers, you know, it's still Mac only for development, but the uh, the program that plays those presentations, the projector, at this point has been ported to a variety of platforms. Okay. Uh, so it's Windows, uh, like OS2, so NC, also Philips CDI, and a whole bunch of other shit nobody ever heard or cared about. But um, And Update 3.1 also added another very popular uh, and cross-platform thing around the time, which was QuickTime Video. And yep. that mm-hmm. basically propelled a lot of... After the success of Myst, people saw that uh, those basically nobodies made a ton of money uh, without sort of uh, catering to the emerging PC market at the time. And of course, CD-ROMs also became available. You know, 3D rendering software became available. So other people jumped on, on that bandwagon, resulting in a lot of what we in the mid-90s called multimedia. Remember when we referred to like everything as multimedia? Like it was basically <laughs> CD sure. music and sound, and we called those multimedia products. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, uh, pick pick one, and uh, 90% of the time they'll be done with Macromedia Director. So, and yeah. And that didn't last very long. Obviously, towards the like late '90s, we sort of realized we didn't want those things, and uh, they all quietly went away. And you know, that was the end of that. But from about '93 to sometimes, sometimes as late as '97, there's a variety of very. Uh, that's what I love about many, many of them. Uh, they were made by non-games people, but sometimes it was just a bunch of artists, producers, and whatever get together, and sometimes they would make something awful. And sometimes they would make something really, really cool. So I love looking for those things. And I, I've seen more of them, uh, as, as evident by my list that I've sent you guys. I, I, I forgot most of them, apparently. But uh, uh, but I've seen Amazing. I've seen at least like 50, 60. I've seen a lot of those, especially in the 90s. And now I can, I can barely remember like 20 of them. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of them. And um, uh, yeah, anybody... Has anything to add at this point? <laughs> I remember listening. seeing lots and lots of Macromedia Director games on the old Home of the Underdogs website. Oh yeah, that's right. And that was that was like the last place I ever saw them archived because that website disappeared for a while, and I don't know if they had archives of their files or if they just had to be rebuilt by the people who tried to recreate that site in the future. But oh, I, that, um, that seemed to be the death of that. That would archives. have been, that would have been me. Um, we what? Yeah. Oh, I didn't. You didn't know that. <laughs> Not, you, what you have their archives? Um, no. What, what happened was um, Home of the Underdogs um, basically saved all of their database information, so all of their game stuff, their reviews, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but they lost the they. Oh wait, let me get it right. They, sorry, they lost their database that stored all of their reviews and their descriptions, but they did have the games itself. So yeah, me and a friend of mine about ah, geez, five years ago. Um, uh, great guy, Lord Paul. He's a—that's uh, his screen name. He's a—he uh, was a developer at Origin Systems for quite a while. Um, he rebuilt Home of the Underdogs as Hotud.org, and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I helped him rebuild the site. Uh, I don't know—that was quite a while ago, five years ago—and um, 
I would love to know if we still have those director things on there. I haven't seen, I haven't touched that site in years, but um, I would assume that they should be on there because we kept everything. Um, there was they like, I, I can't came remember. back. There's now a Twitter and a Patreon, so. But it's not me. the same lady who ran it originally. Oh, no, no. Right? That, that, she's long gone. No, so she bad. was from Thailand. Uh, she, was, she was amazing, yeah. but uh, I don't the remember what happened lady. to her. She she um she has a Twitter herself now, and I don't oh, know really? if she's into government or something. She blogs about all this really serious stuff. Only a little bit of it of it is in English. Oh, but okay. she's alive and kicking. Whatever wow. she's doing, that's cool. Yeah, she was super nice about it. She basically released open sourced all of her underdogs uh, stuff and just said, "Well, whatever developer wants to remake the site, go for it." So me and me and Lord Paul took that over. Um, but I think there was like wow. two others, three two or three other competing home of the underdog sites that went up too. Yeah, there were, and none of them had the best interface I found. I mean, the original didn't have the best interface, but I was used to it. Yeah. It was kind of hard to turn that into something more modern because there were so many features and filters. and Exactly. It was all custom-coded um, from the ground up. Yeah, no doubt. So, uh, so yeah, yeah we, took, we took that formula and basically found a way to make it worse and uglier. <laughs> hey, but you kept it alive. That is yeah, what really matters. True. And of all the things to maintain, the games are the most important thing, of course. So yeah, I'm glad exactly. to hear that that's out there in some form. Yeah, and actually, and, uh, some of the other dogs did not have that many of Macromedia director things because those things tended to be a whole CD's worth of stuff. So oh, that's true. That's yeah, true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And you could, but yeah, that had really slow of, downloads. Actually, that's right. had one of my one of the bigger downloads was 500 megs, and it's actually one of the games I'm going to talk about because uh, it's one of my f- absolute favorite like Windows uh, uh, like un- like underrated unknown cult things of all time. I can guess it, which one that it did have. So. Which I'm very surprised that they actually kept like a 500 meg download, but uh, yeah. but whatever. So and by the way, Macromedia Director is still around as Adobe Director, which I think Shockwave has been merged into it. But nobody gives a shit, obviously, because we don't need it anymore. Um, yeah, exactly. yeah. Flash pretty much killed all that stuff, didn't it? Flash and other things. I mean, they kind of ran parallel because Shockwave was thing, but once things went online and things things kind of get weird. Like I don't understand why there was a the recent release. I think is a version 14 MX or whatever. Is like I think five six years old at this point, but it's still being sold and whatever. Whatever the sale to Adobe happened. Uh, yeah, so I, I remember the first time I saw a Director App. Oh, this is like really embarrassing. Um, well, okay, I'll tell you the first time. The first time I saw Director App, it was um, it was actually on a kiosk. Um, my uncle at the time. Um, this would be the early '90s. He got a copy of Director somehow. I think he bought it actually. Like, and I think it, it was like twelve hundred bucks U.S for a copy of Director at the time. Just totally insane. But he was working for the local government, uh, a local government way up north, and they wanted some sort of presentation, um, kind of like a kiosk that would, it was it was for Aboriginal languages or something like that. And he had done this fairly complex Director app, and I remember him showing me the projector uh, running it, and I was just blown away. I was like, I can't believe you just made like an interactive website, but with like sounds and animation and... And in video, it had some video, you know, really crappy codec, uh, low-quality low codec video, but it was all there, right? Um, mm-hmm. I remember that was, like, the first time I just saw... It seemed like everything just came in a really, really good package. Um, so I'm sure that's a really good medium for that kind of an application, too, because that's... It's the kind of software that really humanizes computers, you might yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. It's basically yeah. left-click for everything. 
Yeah. Yeah, well, and it presents things, you know, in video and in, in graphical multi. I'm, here I am using the friggin' oh. word multimedia, but <laughs> instead of it being textual or putting in keyboard shortcuts yeah. or anything, it's more like you're interacting with like a television. Exactly, and it, it was just like yeah. beautiful. Yeah, and and very often actually another thing like I actually still have a lot of mine. You know, the, in the nineties, like uh, um, game magazines and just com- serious computer magazines came with CDs, and they were like oh, yeah. different every month, and they had all kinds of stuff. A, a lot of times, those things were made with Director as well. That's yeah. one of the things I was going to mention on my list. As a matter of fact, I, I have a lot of really cool ones. There's, one of them is like from ninety eight. Is like really scratched to death because I used it. It had like sort of. Uh, virtual installations by a couple of artists and they're like all like sort of uh, David Lynch inspired things and they're all very interactive. Right. It's really cool. I gotta repair that CD because hmm. I think it's... Oh man, it's you just reminded me of something I, I haven't thought about in 20 years. Um, do you guys remember when CDs, this would be like the late 90s, let's say 95, 96, like music CDs would come with a data track on them so that would have like yeah. special features? Enhanced CDs. Enhanced CDs. Yes, it's it's. You like, just reminded me of that too. I think there was a triple charger one that I have. Uh, there's a often those things for like bands and stuff also would have. Mm. Actually, one of the projects I'm going to talk about actually grew out of that sort of thing where you would put in your CD-ROM and it would have a little interactive sort of game, and that exactly most places you would see a director being applied, often yeah. with quick time and, and stuff. Yeah, because I only had one of those discs, and it was an I Mother Earth disc called Scenery and Fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like just blown away by it because they had a music video from the actual like music video compressed down to like 160 by 120 pixelation running yes. full screen. But I was just like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was pretty big for Canadian bands, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I don't know for some why. Reason. Well, I, actually, I don't know. We must have had some specialist working at one of the labels or something. Well, you know what's funny? We'll get to this one and it totally gets to bring up uh, games. But. There was actually a Toronto-based company uh, called, I think it was called Animatech or something like that, who did one game who was just just fucking terrible. But I think they might have done Canada's, like a lot of Canadian uh, companies' macromedia director stuff. I think they became pretty well known for it. So yeah, well, I'll save that. It's called Midnight Stranger. I'll save that for when we get there. <laughs> no, I'm not actually familiar with that one. Uh, oh, uh, I'm pretty sure I see that tech logo somewhere. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty bad. So we'll, uh, I'll see, I'll save that for later. So, do you guys, what do you guys want to talk about first? Well, I actually thought like probably the right, right. Let's go right to 1993. That's when the cross-platform version comes out, uh, and one of the first CD-ROMs for PC with those multimedia experiences. The one that probably by now more famous than, than the others from around that time and that's of course is Hell Cab um, <laughs> which is I think uh, all three beautiful. of us have something to say but I don't really have to say much about it except for this award winning multimedia title is, is, is crap uh, <laughs> the whole premise is you're a guy who is in New York and you get into this uh, cab uh, that has like Hell Cab on the license plate, and uh, it turns out that uh, you got into the wrong cab, buddy, and uh, now you're time traveling through different periods, solving unsolvable puzzles to win your soul back with this very sort of ethnic uh, uh, cabbie as as uh, <laughs> devil. And, uh, uh, it's broken. Like one of the, it's not just bad, but badly designed, and has this garish pop art. 
uh, sort of art style. But it's yeah, also totally. Broken. Pop was, art's a perfect description. Yeah. Actually, that's a common thing for a lot of those games. Which in, me, in many ways, I actually like the garish art that most of those games come with. I do have sort of that affection for, for bad art that's, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I, me too. These cheesy three D like fong shaded uh, yeah, <laughs> polygon kind exactly. of look. Exactly, or, or like three three D cut out pictures. It's like it's like it's mostly like just you know scanned in or photograph scanned pictures, and they're sort of collapsed. That too. I think there's a lot of <laughs> games do that, or not even early. Like uh, we're going to get to one that's really expensive and really complicated, but it's it's just uh, it's 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 terribly bad, but yet awesome at the same time as well. But Hellcab is not one of those, and it's also it's broken because of the uh, the early uh, version of Windows Projector did not function quite as well as the uh, oh really as the Windows one. Uh, no, it's the Mac yeah. one. In the Mac one, so yeah, Hellcab is rather broken because it's one of those early ones. Oh, and before anything else, I, I will have to point out that uh, Macromedia Director 4 also had projector for DOS, yet I've never ever in my whole life seen anything done with Macromedia um, Director on DOS. So, Me neither. So unless it's one of those, um, unless I've seen that game, it kind of felt like one, but I never bothered to check in the credits because they were actually all those games had to include the logo made with Macromedia uh, right. in its credit sequence. Yeah. But there's this one, uh, Are You Afraid of a Dark Game? You know, the, the can, based on the Canadian oh, yeah. TV, TV show. Yeah. yeah, but there's a DOS game, but it feels like completely like a Macromedia director game, but I haven't seen it in so long, I can't really confirm if it's one or not. Oh, interesting. But yeah, so all mine is DOS stuff, and Mac stuff, especially early on, was, was usually in, uh, superior, but in, in, I never had a Mac, so Hellcab, Terribly broken and just bad. I don't know if you guys want to chime in with more details. Well, I was playing with Hellcab a little bit this week. I I found an ISO and I emulated it in DOSBox in Windows 3.1. Nice. Um, I, I couldn't entirely get it to work. I mean, it mostly worked. The only thing that didn't work was that whenever it tried to play a QuickTime Quick time video, video, yeah, yeah, it would it would give me some error message and then skip out back to the program manager. It would close the game. Right. But I got you know about twenty minutes in or so, and there was some kind of cool stuff in there. I mean, it was very much like Mist, where you're navigating around these two D screens, and it's uh, it's a three D environment presented to you in a series of three D screens, and you click somewhere on the screen, and then you, if you, if possible, you zoom in or you turn or whatever to go to the next part. So there's a lot of those two D screens, like to walk from A to B. There right. might be like 10 different renders that it shows you, yeah. which is kind of cool. I mean, it's a lot of busy work, but that's a lot of detail as well that they really went out of their way to represent that graphically. So I kind of like that. Um, one thing that I liked was that in the very beginning, the first thing that you do before you get on your cab is that you have to take out some money. Yeah, the and that's ATM. like a whole. Yeah, it's a whole like 10, uh, it's a whole 10 click thing where you have to go into your inventory and take your card out. You stick it in the thing. You have to choose how much money you want and. That's kind of cool. Like it's it's immersive in that way. You feel like you're doing all the little, all the little steps. Yeah. So and I, that, that, I was ahead. really uh, the one thing I really remember well from Hellcab is that they couldn't afford to have a lot of actual video in the game. So a lot of the scenes right. are when you're talking when you're talking to a character, they've been like kind of clipped out and then animated using out. like ten ten frames of their motion, which is the funniest fucking thing on earth. <laughs> it's kind of like Titanic adventure out of time kind of kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But, but it's yeah, like I, mean, I, I, I even noticed. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just saying that um, you, you know th- this is a very 
the reason I wanted to talk about that first, not only because it was the earliest, but that's that Soul Horror's style, like interactive multimedia mist like with bad puzzles, is very sort of. Uh, that's what most of those Mercamedia director games were. Right. Like, yeah. the vast majority of them. Yeah, that's they, right. They, they and it's kind of cool to go around an open world. Exactly. But, uh, but you can would, only do it so many times. Yeah, but then in Hellcab, I don't find it enjoyable just because the game is kind of broken and fair and just kind of overall shitty. I don't know. It just doesn't. Something about it. It just kind of. I don't. Uh, I don't know. I don't feel good about playing it. I don't know how to uh, <laughs> how to describe it. It just kind of. I don't know. Something about it. I'm just like yuck. I don't know. <laughs> I think I that's that was still during the honeymoon where we were all just so thrilled to have exactly. a CD-ROM drive with all of these. Like, a, a, you know, full motion video and all that, that we didn't really care what kind of crapola was being spewed out. Yeah, yeah I didn't I even guess. get a CD-ROM drive until 94 at least, so yeah, that was way ahead of its time for me. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I personally wouldn't recommend it. The most I would recommend, read the, uh, a lot of those things that we're discussing, or at least some of them, uh, Richard Cobbett has written about, so just <laughs> that probably would be yeah. the best way to experience a lot of those things. Uh, oh yeah! Thank goodness for Richard Cobbett. He just like takes all the most terrible computer gaming bullets on our behalf. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that's that for Hellcab. I mean, look up videos, and that that you don't have to play it, but that's sort of kind of multimedia experience of the early '90s. But another early uh, CD-ROM I would like to talk about, and that's kind of a weird one, but I think uh, those are the, I would like Hellcab on one hand, and on the other hand, you have those weird things and those two together sort of the two major directions for macromedia uh, director games or just interactive projects the other one game I want to talk about and game is putting it sort of uh, I don't know it's not really a game but it's called Alice an Interactive Museum I don't know if you guys ever heard about it no what uh, is it it's a Japanese game and yeah again it's not really a game it's, it's a sort of virtual art installation you're in this museum okay. and all the, all the art is uh, based on Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland, but it's okay. all done by that by one artist, I think, and they're actually all scans of actual paintings. But they're really weird and not for kids. There's a lot of like sort of, board, well, not really borderline, like just sort of like nude little girls in the, uh, in in those paintings. It's really weird. I see. And, so and it's like a it's like in, kind of setting. like warped, twisted Alice in Wonderland it, kind of stuff. But it's just a museum. You just walk around and you look at paintings. And sometimes you click on things and things happen. And sometimes you get clues. That's the game part of it. You look at uh, at art and you click on, on paintings and they become big. And you can look at them full screen. And sometimes it's multiple oh, parts. And, but you also can have certain elements. Like you click and the screen turns upside down. So you can look at something else upside down and you'll find a clue. And right. then you'll like write down all your clues. Yourself physically on a piece of paper. You might be able to figure out how to leave the museum. Now, uh, it's a Japanese game and it became sort of notoriously rare. A lot of those things, a lot of those things are notoriously rare are, or gone, but this somehow got big enough where people figured out that it was rare, but it was because it was done by some celebrity in Japan, both the artist okay. and the producer. Uh, I think it sold in eBay in the mid 2000, like in the early days of eBay. Well, not really early, sometimes in the mid 2000s for, for the last copy that had been seen in the wild sold for for two grand back in like holy shit yeah Yikes. so you can that's only more imagine. than a copy of Ultima One or Ultima Zero like a, a, yeah, a that's, that, that's yeah. insane 
If only Ultima 1 had nudity. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not the kind of nudity you want. Uh, 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 and yeah, so that's that. I don't know, there's probably videos of it on YouTube. It's a, one of those very obscure things, but obscure in a, in a somewhat famous way. You know, like a lot of people do know about it. Uh, right. It didn't sell for two grand for nothing. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and those amazing. are the two sort of directions. You kind of sort of have like those mist-like video things, and then you have like really sort of like artsy-fartsy, sometimes bizarre and just dark things. And right. those are the two big directions uh, for this. Well, that was one of the strengths of director, because I re- oh, this is so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm admitting this on the air. Uh, um, we haven't talked about... Um, Shockwave yet, or we just briefly mentioned it, but um, do you want, Anatoly, do you want to describe to everybody what Shockwave is? Because I suspect we have listeners who actually have never even used or seen Shockwave before. Well, Shockwave is kind of the, the same thing for that. Uh, it was the development environment that was developed by Macromedia in hopes of getting into like online things. Yeah, uh, so basically you could just bit. project your director movie online. Yeah, basically, it, that's what it was. Like Flash at that point was very in its early stages of things. Things were like vectory and not well developed yet, as they became in later versions of Flash. But Shockwave was essentially a way to put the director things online with some other stuff. They started incorporating some three D stuff at a certain point. It never really right. took yeah. off, but it was like an online thing for for a very very brief period of time. Yeah, I think they at some point didn't they even try to have like. You, there was like an actually an online server that you could access to create multiplayer games with director. Uh, you can still oh, do really? it. Uh, I mean, you can wow. still do it. I think still exists, but I don't think anybody is ever using it. So, <laughs> well, the only reason I kind of I can I can empathize with a lot of the people back in the '90s who made director games or director you know museum experiences because. Uh, 95, I want to say, 94, 95, it would have been 95, 96, I did two of the lamest things I've ever done creatively. One was, I took uh, a a Where's copy of Director, and I made a fan site for (laughs) the Jurassic Park 2 movie, The Lost World, and... And I, like, went through so much effort to, like, create this, like... You know, do you remember when websites used to have splash screens? <laughs> splash yes. Oh, yeah. I made one, yeah. Oh, it's like I had this Macromedia Director Shockwave <laughs> splash screen that, that was, like, you know, 400K, so it would take, like, five minutes to load. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically just this really lame splash page that had, like, the dinosaur thump sound and then, like, the logos like looking like you had like a Photoshop splash effect on it, um, the, the waves effect. So I learned how to use Director really fast, and that was the one thing I realized was I think the be- the reason why so many of these artsy people got into Director was because it was so yeah, it's as really a quick development with the timeline and everything. It's really easy, and it exactly. kind of makes sense. Yeah, it yeah was it's like, kind of like uh, film editing. Yeah, per- like storyboarding. Perfectly. Yeah, and. Um, Anybody who used Adobe Premiere, it's very similar. Yeah, pretty much. Not even Premiere. Like any, like uh, to me, like uh, you know, because I used Flash a little bit in the early right. days of it. To me, the Flash has the same like timeline with elements. So. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, so and you could keyframe. Yeah. You could keyframe stuff in there, and you could set certain behaviors on certain keyframes. So it was very yeah, easy. It's a so. good development environment for those sort of interactive things with the minimal, minimalistic interaction. 
Yeah, definitely. So uh, there's the there's the phone on cue. This wouldn't be a podcast with me if the phone didn't ring in the middle of it. Hmm. <laughs> so so I you made, so you're a Jurassic Park site. I made a Jurassic Park site, which I it was uh, it's gone now. It was on archive.org for a long time, and all of a sudden they stopped archiving that page. Uh, it was really embarrassingly bad, like 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 the kind of thing you want to crawl in a hole and die from after you've seen your creative work, you know, ten, ten years later. Um, and I also had, oh, God, I had another one. I don't know why I was so obsessed with this. I also made a fan site for Independence Day before it came out. <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> and it was also using Director 2. I, I think it was actually after it came out, but I can't remember. But it was around... There's a round launch for Independence Day, which I thought was like at the time was the greatest movie of all time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, thank you, director, for getting me my my toes wet in uh, web programming. Um, oh, that's cute. <laughs> well, uh, yes. So those are the kind of things, and you know, we talked about the ease, and that's why I see a lot of RT people got into it. So like, yeah. So I would like to move on to actually and talk. I'm not going to go chronologically or anything. I'm just going to talk. Like I'm going to talk about the cool stuff first, I guess, just for cool. people who will, who will shut it off like three hours in, uh, <laughs> so they don't have to listen to old shit. Uh, but the cool stuff first. So some of my favorite things from the '90s, uh, well, from the director, are done by this company. Well, at least two of them, and done by this company called Inkscape. Uh, and uh, ah. and uh, I, I recently, well, I got a bunch of strategy guides, and they had the for them finally, and uh, and they had the history of the company. So basically, it was this music producer who worked with the band The Residents uh, on one of those data tracks for for their album uh, in, in the '90s, uh, and they made this whole interactive thing. So he's like, "Oh, this is the future." So he went and established the company to just make those things. Um, uh, and wow. uh, Time Warner was actually hand- through his connections. Time Warner was hand- handling his publishing side. So the first game that they did was actually in conjunction with the Residents, and to, to sort of came out at the same time as their album. I think uh, it's a uh, bad day on the Midway. Oh yeah, I remember when that came out. Yeah, that's a really cool thing, hmm. kind of uh, like a cult classic of sorts. I like it. Um, it's uh, this really weird interactive experience, and it's all 3D rendered thing, like many of those things were, rather crudely. And for facial animation, they actually just project video textures of filmed actors onto like a, a flat polygon. Looks really weird sometimes, but whatever, it gets oh, the cool. job done. But the premise of this game is you're in this sort of run-down um, theme park, the Midway. All kinds of characters live there. And it's all semi-real time. And you start as this little boy called right. Timmy. He's like, oh, yay, I'm going to go to the, you know, to the roller coasters. And there's something really dark and mysterious going on in this park. But the cool part about this game is you get to explore freely, kind of, until you, like, die or something horrible happens. And <laughs> every time you sort of meet with a character, you can look in their eyes and flip souls with them. And you'll be playing as that character. Uh, oh, right. and, so, and certain areas of the game are obviously in certain characters and dialogue options only available when you play as these characters. But also the game is on the timer. Eventually everybody dies from like bubonic plague um, <laughs> from a rat, which you can also possess at one point. But also as you encounter these new characters, you all have a story to tell. And each story is just told with a voiceover and, the, and the, a slideshow. And each slideshow 
is done by a different sort of pop artist, and they're really fucking cool, really creepy. And like that that one guy who is like, there's this guy. It's a cool design game on paper because it's really weird and really quirky and kind of really works that whole concept of soul jumping. That all of that is really really good, but there's like certain stuff like if you go into a certain building where the serial killer lives, that guy, like there is like a 75% random chance that he will kill you, you know? So uh, <laughs> that's not good design, but that's the kind of game that is. But like that guy, he t- when you encounter him, especially he kills you, there's a bigger chance that he'll kill you if you play as a nine-year-old boy, you know? So, uh, and right. like his story is all like water, like sort of like really washed out watercolors about like his fight. It's really twisted. Like, uh, uh, like each one of them is either very emotional, like the rat story I really like, how... Uh, he was like a rat government did experiments on and he escaped and now he just hates the humans uh, and uh, it, it's all those owners this lady who, who becomes gradually becomes like uh, like a tree creature or the owner of the um, uh, the midway who is now like uh, catatonic and it's his wife who like cares for him and stuff and it's really cool to explore the park you, you'll die 50 million times before you figure out what to do uh, but it's a very open <laughs> Game. And it's also done this sort of mist-like style where you sort of move from uh, a sort of hotspot to hotspot. Yeah, but it's like yeah. it's more it's more free. It's not like turn ninety degrees. It's more like you just sort of float to those islands of activity. Um, right. And yeah, it's it's it doesn't quite come together in execution, but I think the 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 content is pretty solid. It's undoubtedly. Yeah, a bad I remember game. it being a very uh, like a very visually attractive game. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at the images as you are describing it, and this is just awesome. The yeah. art style is like really colorful and grotesque. I will say that that's a exactly. game that uh, definitely um, uh, like more people should check it out. Uh, it, it can actually be picked up, boxed, like complete, and sometimes shrink wrapped for about you know thirty to forty to fifty to sixty dollars on eBay. They pop up sometimes. So. Wow. Uh, and the strategy guide is essential. It can be had for like a dollar on Amazon. If, just don't buy them from eBay where people sell them for like $50, obviously. Uh, strategy guide is almost essential. There's almost no walkthroughs online because nobody wants to play it. Um, but only like recently picking up strategy guide, I, I've kind of realized how, how badly reliant on random number generator that game is, um, which is a bit, obviously a bad thing. But I do recommend it. It's a really surreal, really cool experience. And that brings us to the second game that company made, which is some one of my most favorite things ever, and it's called The Dark Eye. And, yeah, I can't oh, wait yeah. to hear about this. Yeah, so The Dark Eye is uh, kind of the same game. Uh, it's a first-person mist-like adventure, but not really because there is no puzzles in it. But it's sort of interactive story based on stories of Edgar Allan Poe. And all the characters are done using clay puppets, not claymation puppets, clay puppets, like real hard clay, and they all have hollow eyes uh, in, uh, in the stories. And the premise is you arrive at this house, there's some kind of family drama going on, and periodically you go into those trances, sort of. You're like, they're all like, oh, what's going on with you? And all, all of a sudden, everything goes blue, and you're in the same house, but empty, and you hear those whispers, like, and you go in and you go closer to certain objects and you can play through three Edgar Allan Poe stories um, which are of course the Telltale Heart right? the Cask of Amontillado and Bernice and through all of the stories you have to go through as the victim and the killer 
oh, uh, to, wow. com- to complete the game. And also the main uh, story plays out, which is not Edgar Allan Poe's story, it's original, but it's kind of full of the House of Usher-like. Um, uh, it's it has these beautiful puppets made by uh, the guy who did some of the effects on Aliens. Um, oh wow! Uh, beautiful Whoa. 3D backgrounds by somebody else who I don't remember. Music, beautiful atmospheric, creepy music, violins, and just sort of really weird things by Thomas Dolby. Uh, and wow. it features the voice talent of freaking uh, William Burroughs. which oh, is really <laughs> amazing. Who not only voices one of the characters in the game. But also tells uh, has a complete reading with a pop art slideshow of Mask of the Red Death, uh, and at one point in the game, and also does the Annabelle Lee uh, poem, which his reading of it is like my absolute favorite. Because if you know what William Burrow sounds like, it's like a perfect fit. Oh, so That's good! Amazing. It's so dark, moody. It's creepy. It's it's the puppets are creepy. The music is creepy. You love Poe, like you like you'll be breaking in Fortunato inside, like a, you know, brick by brick. Literally, you just put in the things, and it's like, you know, for the love of God, Montresor. Yes, for the love <laughs> of God. Like the voice acting is amazing. Everything is great, and like the Bernice. Oh, I can't when, wait to play this. Yeah, Bernice, when you go crazy, uh, like you start seeing teeth everywhere. So good, so effective. As a game, it's not even really a game. It's more like you, the the whole gameplay is you do, you go through the story and you just have to find what's the next hot spot is. So where the where, what's the place where you have to stand on to to make some interaction happen? That's basically the gameplay. Right. Uh, so is it something that you're not going to need to walk through for? It's just no, like an interactive it's story. It's not, but like you just no, absolutely not. It's 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 great to figure out things on your own. It just you need to know certain things like that you can't hear the poem because you can mi- miss the poem and you can miss the mask of the red death. I think they're not essential to the complete walkthrough, but everything else. And also, don't the hint if you're going to play this that game inherited the soul jump from Bad Day on Midway. Don't ever do it. You're going to screw yourself and you'll have to play again because. You have to play through the complete the story completely, but it allows you at right. certain points you see the the face of the killer or the victim up close to to do like they they start reflecting in their you start reflecting in their eyes and it's a moment where you can jump to their side of the story. Don't do it because it's going to screw you. So just to play as you are. And there's certain objects within the, within the house where like you know you go. Uh, that's the thing for the. For the cast coming together, for example, you find the room, and that's where the whispers get loud, and that's how you know you can interact with something. And um, uh, uh, the the it's the objects, you know, are the bottle and the glass of wine. So if you if you pick the bottle, you're you're a Montressor. If you if you if you pick the the glass, you're Fortunato, obviously. And mm-hmm. so you know, so, so if you find one object of the store, you'll find another one right next to it. So. Um, that's the thing. I highly recommend it. Uh, I know some people are really big fans of it. People who made um, uh, that's recent uh, uh, sort of claymation-like adventure, the Dream Machine. Uh, oh, really? They are big fans of that, so they borrowed a lot of it. And of course, uh, uh, adventure game community uh, uh, friend and supporter Agustin Cordes is, is a big fan of it. Uh, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that as well. So we we at one point had a, like. A, two-hour-long drunken conversation about it. So uh, it's, uh, it's it's great. Like, I would recommend it highly. It's actually, if you're going to run it in DOSBox and Windows 3.1, uh, 
um, make sure you have the, well both QuickTime installed and uh, you need a slightly different display driver because it actually runs not in high color, but you know the in between the sixty-five thousand color mode. Right. So mm-hmm. if you run it in two hundred fifty-six color mode, you're going to lose out a little bit. So don't do it. The art is beautiful. So get like an S3 uh, driver for Windows 3.1 and just play it that way. It, that's actually a lot right. more reliable than trying to play it right now uh, uh, or through kind of like any kind of Windows emulation. So, uh, oh, okay. I've had to do that before, by the way, and I recommend our listeners just search Google for DOSBox High Color video driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it'll point you. I think it's the S3 card that yeah. it emulates. Yeah. Because by default, that's box yeah. six select uh, trio. So you'll just need the trio driver and, you know, Windows 3.1 will read it just like that. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that. And also, uh, Inkscape uh, published a few other Macromedia Director games uh, like Drown God, uh, uh, which I have not played. It's about, ali- it's about aliens. And it also developed another one in conjunction with band... Uh, uh, Devo or Devo, uh, you know the the Whippet people, right. Whippet Good, uh, mm-hmm. Adventures of the Smart Patrol. I haven't played it. Wow, looks kind of silly. <laughs> uh, that's like <laughs> that's cool. If anybody played it's it, uh, contact me on contact me on Twitter. Tell me if it's any good. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Um, the one thing I remember about the Dark Eye was it has because I saw it in stores. I remember when it came out. They, I have it in the box. box. I, I love that game so much that I do have it in the box, and so That's I do. Amazing. I have that day, that day on the midway as well, and I have the hint That's in the box as well. The, the Dark Eye has one of the best paint hand painted box oh, art I've ever box seen. Art. That's oh yeah, from it's unbelievably uh, well painted. Yeah. The whole game is like this. It's 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 wow. so it's so. I will I will suggest. People will take anything. If people actually listen to this, we're like at almost exactly a two-hour mark right now, and I'm just getting started. But people, if people listen this far, if anything you'll take away from me, please play the Dark Eye. Uh, it's great. It's great and amazing. amazing. Yes. Uh, I've got right, so. I've got a I've got a craptacular title. I have to. I, I, we got to contrast this with the worst thing I have ever <laughs> actually played that was made in Macromedia. Um, Let's have it. Uh, it's called Virtual Valerie. <laughs> this is a title that I've heard, and I'm sure I've seen it either adver- yeah, just advertised, not reviewed, in a magazine. This is like one of those Virtual Girl kind of a yeah. phenomenon like games, isn't it? One of the earliest ones, yeah. And it was mm-hmm. also poorly rendered in 3D. And, uh, <laughs> it was bad, and uh, was successful enough for them to make two of them. In fact, it's actually probably the most successful Macromedia adult. Yeah, project. I was just going to say, I think it's tons. actually one of the more well-known ones. <laughs> yes, because mm. there were tons. Again, Vivid jumped on it, like Hustler jumped on it, Seymour Butts jumped on it, like Seymour Butts had like at least three interactive titles published, uh, and so did Vivid. Uh, I specifically remember a game based on Michael Nin's uh, Latex. If anybody is a, a fan of adult films of the 90s, that was like one of the higher budget productions full of like makeup and and okay. uh, effects and stages and everything. So they actually made two games using it. The games were shit, but hey, they had clips <laughs> from that movie. That's all I ever cared about. And they were in quick time in the folder. Yay! <laughs> uh, <yeah>. so, <laughs> I love the production value. But the production, well, uh, on the game, but on uh, on that on uh, on those videos, quite intense. I'm not going to go into depth in this. I'm sure people who know know. People who don't know probably don't want to know. Um, so so there is that. But uh, yeah, so there's a lot of adult stuff. But Virtual Valerie was probably the most known, which is weird because it, uh, to make that 
couldn't cost more than like five dollars. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it, apparently the I I had to do some research on on sex games about I think it was a year or two ago, and Virtual Valerie. Okay, so so okay, so personal story for me. Virtual mm-hmm. Valerie Two is the one that I actually played, and I remember being totally titillated by it because I had never saw a sex game in my life on a computer. I just thought it was the funniest thing on earth. I think I managed to get it. The weird thing is, I think I actually managed to have play a like a playable demo of it on like a magazine called CD-ROM Today that came out in the mid or late nineties, and mm-hmm. I don't think anybody who worked for that company realized that they were basically publishing a demo of a porn game in their, like, family-friendly magazine. So it was, mm-hmm. it was like, buried in a folder on the disc. So I played that, but it was, it was like, last year I was reading about uh, Virtual Valerie 1. It was this academic article, and it has the funniest fucking thing ever. So in Virtual Valerie 1, okay, so anybody who hasn't played, like, a, a romance and, you know, uh, provide sexual uh, release for this, on this, this, what would you call it, uh, on-screen character, you go into this girl's house and you search through all of her stuff, adventure game style, and then eventually you end up in her bedroom, which is, you know, laying sprawled out on the bed saying, pleasure me, and then you have a bunch of tools and toys you can use on her. But the best thing about that game, the original version made in 1990 for the Macintosh, so that's like very early version of director. Um, <laughs> so, so the first game it, is like sort of drawn... Uh, and the second game is is like badly 3D rendered. Yeah, really terrible 3D rendering. Yeah, exactly. The first one, if you walked into the bedroom and she'd say like, "Come on, big boy, are you ready to pleasure me?" If you click no, it would call a function in Director called reboot, and it would reboot your <laughs> Macintosh like like a hard reboot. Like oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> It's a pushy lady. I know, and I was just like, I was just like, why on earth? Like, I thought it was a bug, and then like the, the <laughs> developer goes on to describe. He's like, I was trying to think of something significantly punitive that I could punish the player with for rejecting the. <laughs> I'm like, that is awesome. That's kind of awesome. That's I'm like, nice. I love that. I love that director actually had the capability of like triggering a yeah, cold I boot. Didn't know that. I was like, why would? Why was that a function? I guess exactly. what this software like, it would be, right? Like reboot the electronic kiosk or something. Yeah, um, I guess that would make sense. Yeah, on on like if you get like that little explosion bomb symbol on the Mac, we just reboot. But wow. So yeah, that was that was that was the only story I had about Virtual Valerie, and I remember she had like, these really terrible oh, Virtual Valerie too. She had these really terrible like, ooh, oh, and you know, she'd like repeat the same little screams over and over and over because like it was like. <laughs> based on some sort of random timer, but sometimes the random voice would come up like the exact same, like, ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> it was absolutely horrible, but at the same time, I was 17 or 16 years old and had no problems with this. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's not like the internet was quite so prevalent that, in those days anyway, so you take what like, you can get. Here's the thing, it's like, yeah, like, I could, uh, like, on Latex, uh, there were compressed videos from things, but I didn't have that VHS, and, like, if I tried to download those files from a BBS, and they were, like, full-length, like, five, five-minute clips, you know, not just, like, 30 oh, wow. seconds that you would get from a BBS, mm. like, I, I would have never been able to download those, so thanks to whoever right. made that and whoever pirated it in Russia and... Uh, here I am now today talking about this all those 20 years later. Um, but yeah, so there was a lot of porn games, but all of them are shit. And, they're, and Virtual Valerie including. It's it's sad that the 
product of such low quality actually got that successful. So um, yeah, exactly. There's that. So we, uh, I'm gonna stir it back into the sort of awesome stuff, and there is a, a few like really awesome things that I, I want to mention. One of them is this, also like a cult classic of sorts called Cosmology of Kyoto. Oh and yeah, you'd mentioned this once before. Right? Some of the listeners also might know about this just by the virtue. Of it. You know, you know that Roger Ebert was legendary uh, for his uh, uh, video games are not art. Thing. Well, mm-hmm, he right. have publicly stated multiple times that cosmology of Kyoto is art, and uh, oh. although I don't agree with his main sentiment, I, I do agree in this case that cosmology of Kyoto is is not just game; it's fucking art, and it's and it's amazing. Wow! And I wish I so, could. So, so what kind of gameplay is it? It's not really well. First of all, that's the weird part. It's a Japanese edutainment title, kind of. Okay. Um, but um, it's sort of the same thing, kind of. Uh, but it's all hand-drawn, there's no 3D stuff, where you are yourself are a person in 10th, 10th century Japan, in Kyoto, right? And there's this open, right. Kyoto is this open city, and um, everything, is, by the way, is in the game is Japanese, but it's all subtitled in English. And, uh, uh, and it also has an encyclopedia that you can read. Um, actually, one of those things where you know in Edutainment tells when it had a game and encyclopedia separate just to be called Edutainment and you never read the encyclopedia. Now, mm-hmm. articles in Cosmology of Kyoto not only are well written and short and informative, but also you need to know things because here's the gameplay. You go, it's all of it is based on folklore from around that time and recorded stories. Like there was like uh, in some records somewhere in Kyoto, there was a house that was haunted by this woman's husband so you eventually come across that house and you come to it and there's this woman comes out and she says her house is haunted so you have a choice to go into the side of the house and talk to the ghost and you communicate with uh, characters with people by typing in what you want to say uh, on the keyboard and usually you would die oh, wow. the, ghost, the ghost would kill you or like stray dogs would attack you or you'd get some kind of disease when you die you find yourself in the Buddhist hell where it's like the most nightmarish imagery you can see it's all like hand-drawn, but really, really cool and really, really creepy. And eventually, you would get resurrected. And you can get resurrected as a different person or maybe as a dog or whatever. And you would continue your game. Mm. And it's really, really cool. And just like that, by exploring the city, solving little kind of puzzles and getting killed and getting reincarnated, you learn. You really, really learn about that, that time and the folklore of that time. It's one of the That's most unique things I have ever touched in my life. And I remember, I remember seeing screenshots of it quite some yeah, time ago, and I remember of, the, you'll see how crazy the art style is. Yeah, the art style is insane. Now, it's, beautiful. Yeah. it's like yeah. I remember the characters have these kind of squished-in faces, but they have these huge, like, oversized heads, and it's like very, very distinctive kind of it's, mix it's, of it's, traditional it's, Japanese style and like a very weird modern horror style. Yeah. It's very disturbing. It's it's very much a horror game, but it's an educational horror game. Only Japanese people would do that. <laughs> That's amazing. Mind-blowingly amazing. It's a great. It's a great title. Kind of like you know, like even to this day, we now have this indie game boom. And I was, I would. That's why I like indie games, and I like those games because I feel a lot of them come from the same place. But I'm yet to see a game like that. Like to me, that is like that was such a move forward in a different direction. You know, like it was not mainstream. But somebody put so much faith and time and, and good design decisions. Actually, that's that's a very well-designed thing. Uh, uh, but you will need a lot of, long time to beat it, and uh, you, it will be a while before you'll discover everything. It's very nonlinear and very open. But 
it, it's such that's a beautiful crazy. piece of just like I cannot even call it a game like that's a thing that even though there are certainly states in it like wins there so we can win the game uh, and it certainly has its purpose as an educational piece of software but like I that's what I describe as a piece of art it's it's absolutely it's it's absolutely amazing wow. so I can't, yeah. I can't wait to check it I out I will recommend it you will not be able to find a physical copy anywhere so download away uh, uh, I wish it would get reissued somewhere. I, I doubt it ever will, uh, mainly because it's Japanese and for Windows right. and yeah, those things don't don't tend to surface often. Now, did this game uh, make much use of the Macromedia Director Medium? Did it have like multimedia stuff, or was it really just well, going around and seeing was, images? Oh, well, you know, but it did the frames of animation and sound and that sort of. Mm. It didn't have any QuickTime, I don't think, but it had all the in-engine sort of, you know, like sprite animations and stuff like that um but it's really really cool um <laughs> i will recommend looks great highly, highly another thing that's somewhat of a cult and i've seen people mention it so i guess it's coming back uh there's this title not many people know about it but it's based on some series of books that i've never heard about either apparently like a bestseller in the 90s uh it's called ceremony the ceremony of innocence okay and, never heard of it. yeah it's a weird thing it's and, and that's another thing. You know how in the nineties the voice acting in, in, in computer games was generally bad? Now mm-hmm. because most of those people who made these games came from different business like music business or film business, it was like completely the opposite. Usually the art and and three D and uh, uh, and voice acting were top notch and uh huh. uh in the early '90s, while in Sierra, we in, of Sierra games of the same time we we, we listened to Office employees. You know, here it was completely the opposite. I mean, I just said you know, wow. Dark Eye had Burroughs and Thomas Dolby and professionals, right? Making it sure it doesn't look fucking as shitty as Phantasmagoria. So, you know, <laughs> uh, so there's quite a bit of contrast there. But Ceremony of Innocence is this really simple. That's not another one of those non-games things. The story is. There's this girl on the island who sends a postcard to London, and I forget what happens. A guy in London gets the postcard, and he reads it, and they become unlikely pen pals. And the whole game is just postcards between two people being read beautifully. But before you get to read it, each postcard is unique, and they have those interactive sort of puzzles on the postcard, where you just kind of have to click and drag things, have to figure out how to work it, just so you can sort of unlock it and hear what's on the postcard. They're all handwritten the and hand painted you know animations uh and there's just people reading postcards for like 2 hours uh but but <laughs> it, it's a great piece like of interactive media the interactive part of it is not as as great as the actual writing and the delivery of it yeah. as, as right. uh, i will recommend uh, checking it out um not much game into it and can become boring you have to go into it it's sort of like you know like um well sort of like a you know uh uh, digital love story. You had to go in like a certain mindset. That being that there is not much game involved. Uh, only right. maybe there's even less game than, than in digital, which is hard to imagine. <laughs> but uh, so there was uh, there, there is that the ceremony cer- ceremony. I don't know. Uh, my pronunciation is bad. Ceremony of innocence. Um, and if you look up with books that may it's based on, maybe you've read the books. So if you like the books, there's a good chance you'll like that game, but I'm not familiar with that. Um, another thing that I like to touch on some kind of a guilty pleasure of mine, a game that's undoubtedly bad, but nonetheless is famous, and the game is called Nine. 
Okay, so it's just called nine. It's called nine, not word nine, but it's actually number nine. Um, uh, which later was, well, not later, but kind of sub- gets subtitled the Nine, The Last Resort. Um, that's a game that's sort of famous because it was very expensive for the time. It's a misclone and a ruthless misclone at that. Uh, it was one and only game done by Tribeca Interactive, a company that Robert De Niro formed um, to, to make Whoa. video games. And that video game came out and was very expensive and it was a gigantic flop and that was the end of Tribeca Interactive. Um, but because of it, uh, it's full, it's like all 3D renders, are all the art, all the garish, the most like painful yet somehow amazingly awesome uh, art is done by the guy who did like 50 million rock album covers uh, and now also the game features the voice talents of Jim Belushi, Cher, uh, Christopher Reeve, wow. um, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, who is not even credited because she wasn't—I don't think she was that famous at that point. Uh, N. H. Um, also not credited, I think, which is weird. Um, uh, 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 Steven Tyler, um, and uh, who the fuck knows who else? There's like all kinds of weird celebrity cameos, and of course, in the whole in the promotional. Uh, in the commercial for it, Robert De Niro himself does this the most laziest promotion. He's just like, well, in the movie, you uh, yeah, you just show one side of any situation, any character. Uh, oh, no, any one side of anything. And in the game, you can show multiple sides of one situation, one character, one whatever. Uh, and they put that <laughs> in the commercial. But the game is a shameless misclone. You're, you find yourself in this crazy um, resort uh where your uncle Thornton last uh, left you, and it's all kinds of crazy, crazy puzzles. Uh, the game is, well, garishly beautiful, and unlike in Mist or any other games, you actually turn at 45 degree angles, which is pretty cool. Oh, uh, and it looks a lot like a double fine kind of a style. Uh, I, I guess, only it's like really fucking nightmarish at times. The game has unforgivably different, difficult puzzles, and they, each one of them generates of, from the set of four. Like, look, if you look at screenshots now, see, look at any screenshots of which have pages on screen. Do you see any of those? Those are hints for you that you find pages to solve puzzles. Now, those things are supposed to copy down by yourself on a piece of paper, and they're cryptic oh. as hell, and they're very difficult. It's one of the most difficult games, even with the walkthrough, with the randomly generated puzzles, it's fucking difficult as all hell. And a lot of those puzzles, most of them are actually based on music, and as a person, I, I'm not... I like music, but I'm not into music, so those puzzles are really difficult for me. And, um, uh, and there's also a nearly random game-breaking bug near the very end of the game. So the game is essentially impossible, oh. but um, it's my, my, my guilty pleasures because I'm like, what's so 90s, so, so sort of beautifully kitsch about it? Like, it's undoubtedly a bad game, overly designed game by people who, like, missed and had a lot of money to work with. Um, that's another mm-hmm. thing about Macromedia Director. Just about every shitty, 90, like, 99% of shitty missed clones from the 90s, low budget, Macromedia Director. Now, this was one of them because they had a lot of Robert De Niro's money to work with. Um, uh, I'd say, I'd suggest at least look, don't play it, but look up. I know there's full silent walkthroughs online, just long plays uh, on YouTube, just to check out the art and the insanity of those puzzles. 
go for it. Just fucking go for it. It's worth just taking a look. It's my guilty pleasure, but I cannot recommend it to anyone to actually play it. It's a very memorable box cover, too, and I know I've seen this I have that in box. stores. There's I have like, that box as well. <laughs> it's a, oh, it's a beautiful cover. It's like this evil monkey wearing a crown and holding like a big playing card sort of a thing with a stylized number nine. It, it, oh, I remember that box now. Yeah, it's also very memorable box. It's also one of those games where it's impossible to find on Google because you know, just like Z, it's only one. Yeah, it's only one simple. Like, what do you go look for? Nine. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. No, so, no, you, you know, you know the you know the route with eBay. You have to search for like not number nine, then nine, then boxed, then PC, then shrinked, then well, no, uh, I, what I other words? Yeah, rare, vintage. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, it's going to pop up and somebody on eBay, rare rare PC game, $300. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Buy it now, $5,000. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I've seen those. Like, I'm looking at one like two days ago where somebody just put it up with like a minimal sale of like uh, of like over $100. And I'm like, are you kidding me, guy? Are you wow. kidding me? And I, I'm almost buying it, but I, I'm not buying it because I can't support that sort of shit. Um, but that's that. So, um, another, well, let's do a random one. Um, uh, I don't know if any of you played Milk with the Y. Oh. It was some kid made a, a missed parody. No. Um, oh, weird. Just, no, I, it's, I, I, I heard of Pissed. Well, yeah. that's also coming up, <laughs> but, but milk, <laughs> milk is some guy in high school, uh, back in like, I think, uh, late nineties or something made a macromedia director thing with like you know ms paint like graphics uh that's a parody of mist it's called <laughs> milk and you're in a farm uh where you have to f- eventually find this cow that's like lost uh, like what's his face like atris um in, in mist but there's also like an evil farmer in 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 one of them where he's like bring me the page uh you know so yeah <laughs> that's great and uh, yeah so it's you know what at- i hate cletus <laughs> <laughs> what do you, oh I forget the other guy's name <laughs> yeah so like he he did that it's, well, like, <laughs> it's a fun game it's actually the, because like, all those ridiculous puzzles made up you know MS Paint like art and it's made by like a 15 year old but it's fun to play just because for, for a person like me who you know like it's more parody of Mist than Pissed ever ever could be you know wow so, so there's the only that, thing so. I knew about Pissed was that it had John Goodman on the cover I think that's what I was going to say. That's what everybody knew about Pissed. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, didn't he only have like three player. lines on the whole thing? Yeah, there's a, I'm John Goodman and I'm pissed. Yeah, that's literally <laughs> the opening line. Uh, but yeah, Ugh. so uh, there's that. I think um, I'm going to mention a few other ones. I mean, also kind of missed like games with, but that were successful uh, and you might know about. You know the Journeyman, Journeyman Project? Oh, oh Journeyman yes. Project. Yeah, well, I had well, like all the, 26 discs of one of them. Well, yeah, <laughs> but the first, the first game, the very first original version before they did the remake, you know, Turbo, which was a proper right. updated version, and the later on they actually did the the, the actual remake. Uh, the original version of Journeyman Project One is a Macromedia Director title. Oh wow! Uh, de- huh. Developed on Mac, which is on 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 Mac, on Mac, on a Mac, uh, which is why again it was so early on, which is why the Windows version was slightly broken because it was done with this early version of projector. Wow. As well, uh, which I think is I had uh, Journeyman Project Turbo, but I don't really yeah, know that's, which that's Journeyman the Project one. it was. Yeah. 
okay, that was the update. It's the okay. first one. I think yeah. I had three. But it's a, it's a patched and slightly... Uh, and I don't know if it was still director at that point. They might already... Because it was around the time they did the, the sequel, so they might have actually did that, that one, they ported it to their engine. But the first oh, one I definitely did. was. So, and Journeyman Project, I'm not a fan of it, but it's like, to me, uh, like if I'm going to play a Miss Clone, that's what, I want. that's what I want. There's actual interaction, there's actual puzzles, there are things that are solvable, yep. and they're cool mm-hmm. plot with time travel. I mean, if you look at art nowadays, of course it, it looks, you know... Very dated, um, but it's actually a very solid game, despite being a mistoid, you know? So, uh, like, I would... Rec- well, what I remember about Journeyman Project, if I'm not misremembering, is that it did a really good job of kind of putting you in the eyes of the protagonist, and yeah. things happen more or less... I won't say they happen in real time, but I mean, like, you would you would travel in an elevator, or your machine would move here or there or something, you'd have to wait for the animation to complete, and then the door would open. Yeah, so exactly. it's like you're it, it, seeing this linear story through your eyes. Yeah, that was well, my too. I remember there was a ton of animation in it compared to Mist. Yeah, it is also tons. Yes. So there is uh, there is that. So and those games are available on GOG, I think. So um, you know. Oh well. You, you could pick them up. Um, They're kind of frustrating, though. I remember, and I remember waiting and waiting for animations to complete. There's the good side and the bad side of that. Yeah, and I I don't know. I I, I remember buying Journey and Project in like a like in a like a five dollar bin at a computer store, and I played it for maybe an hour tops. And I didn't even get out of disc one. Uh, it was like four or five discs on the thing. And the only thing I can think of is like, Journeyman Project to me is like, I don't know, taking a piss inside of a scuba diving suit. It's like you can, but do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very colorful analogy, but uh, I, I'm sure I stole that I see from where somewhere. You're going. But it's like, you know, there, there's so many other games out there worth playing that Journeyman Project just like automatically fell off the bottom of every one of my lists. Yeah, I guess, but I mean, seriously, I know people love that game, and it's successful enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It had a huge following, because it had like four or five sequels, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It's at least two I know of. Did it have four? Is there a Journeyman Project 4? I'm not sure anymore. I know 3 was really big around that, like, late 90s. I remember that being a big people yeah. waiting for that. Um, oh, yeah, 3 had uh, some Hollywood actress, um, Tia Carrere. Oh, really? Oh, really? From Wayne's World. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, she was the protagonist. Oh, that's and awesome. she she wasn't bad. Oh really? Wow. Well yeah, she I mean, totally yeah, got into it. Who's in a few FMD games? This three had Brad Dourif, so <laughs> Oh right. Right, that's right. Uh, I care about that. Yeah. So so it's that. Another standalone mistoid that I do kind of like is um uh Amber, uh Journeys Beyond. Um, oh, I don't think I sort of played that classic. one. Adventure. It's actually a cool thing. You're like a psychic in a haunted house, and uh, uh, since you guys are Blackwell fans, you get rid of ghosts in very much the same way. You you have to convince the ghosts that they're dead. Oh, <clears throat> now we finally ripped have off. I don't know. He actually. I, I don't know if he. We had conversation. We, we every time I see Dave Gilbert, he's. We were both very drunk. So um, half the time we. <laughs> talking about the same things but i don't actually remember uh if he might have actually said that that's where he took it from but probably not he likes books he likes a lot of books so he probably read it in some book and ripped it off versus he ripped it off some game i'm just kidding <laughs> dave will love you don't don't hit me uh i know like half the people who work for him listen to half all the people who work for him listen to this podcast so <laughs> right edit edit um 
so yeah, it's this game. It has FMV uh, actors, which are pretty decent. A really cool ambient music that's not scary and sound design that's that is scary. And there is really not puzzles as much as interactions. So it's more like an interactive story. And it's kind of endured for a long time. People were actually looking for a way to run it on modern systems. I remember that was like a big deal, but because it's a director game, it's a pain in the ass. And I think yeah, people actually exactly. figured out, people actually did patches for that specific like revision of director and that specific uh, executable to, to make wow. it run on certain systems. So people do keep it alive. So it's, it's, it's popular enough uh, to, to warrant that more than any other director game that we can think of. So if that's what's happening, then uh, I guess it's good. It's certainly not my cup of tea. I remember it being pleasant, but I guess it's a cult classic in a way. Cool. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Here, why don't I interject with one? Sure, go for it. All right. Um, one that I picked up in a bookstore, uh, and I love this thing to death. It is a digital magazine called Blender. Mm-hmm. I have one from, oh. I think it was it was from 1995. Um, so it was in the magazine section of the bookstore, and it's basically, you know, it's a CD-ROM uh, that worked for Windows 3.1. 3.1? Yeah, yeah, three point one. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, basically just an interactive magazine where you can uh, click around on these really wacky, uh, very uh, grungy '90s stylized kind of menus. Some uh, they had all these animations and like rock and techni- techno music in the background. <laughs> and they would have uh, articles about pop culture, like textual articles, but they were sort of this like hypertext kind of textual stuff where right. you would hover your mouse over various things and there would be these hot spots. It was sort of like finding I don't I, I don't know if DVDs do this anymore. DVDs used to have these like when you were navigating on the right. menus, yeah. you would like press left where you weren't supposed to and it'd have these little hidden things. Yeah, like the Simpsons, so, Simpsons Easter egg menus. Oh yeah, do they do that there too? Yeah. They used to be a popular thing. <laughs> so um you could hover over different words and there would be a little question mark over a word or it would like kind of bulge a little bit and you click it and there would either be a snarky little joke there or maybe it would play a little quick time video or a sound effect or just give you a little uh, box out with some more information. It was a bit of a tactile and interactive way of presenting the, the, the text to you. And the writing was kind of snappy and uh, often educational and interesting. Like They would have... Uh, let's see, I wrote some of these down. They had articles about... Um, they had articles that were like um, interviews with uh, with uh, pop culture people like uh, Lisa Loeb. There's a name we haven't heard <laughs> since the 90s. Or they would make fun of uh, of certain things. They had like an article about uh, making fun of Courtney Love, who had all these like text-based internet tantrums or something, <laughs> complaining about other other famous people. Um, one really cool thing that they had is a uh, a QuickTime VR walkthrough of the Beastie Boys recording studio in Oh, Brooklyn. no way. QuickTime VR, very cool. Quick time was, VR was like super, super impressive when that first came out. It was really impressive. Yeah, I don't those, know how early... It's all those panoramic things, right? With zooms. That's right. I... Exactly. It's basically like a Google Street View thing, but indoors. So I think yeah. you needed a special camera in order to do that. But it was awesome, you, and it you looked very convincing. Do you guys know the story about the QuickTime VR kid? Absolutely not. Kid, no. Oh, it's ridiculous. Back in like 19, uh, 1994, 93, I remember seeing this like this TV news episode about this kid in California that was like 14 or 15 years old and had programmed QuickTime VR. And 
Apple bought it from this kid and hired hired this kid, and he was like an instant millionaire at 15 or 16 years old. Damn. It was totally insane. And I remember looking his name up like two years ago, and he became like a, a he became some sort of like um, philanthropist or something like that. Now he's like in his like mid or early 30s now. But I just remember being like, that kid is a god. I remember the video had him. Like had him like interviewing with Steve Jobs or something like that, or interviewing with one of the Apple people, and then running to his bedroom and jumping on the bed. And I'm like, that's got to be the happiest kid on earth. <laughs> that's awesome. I wonder if he was a demo scener or something, because that's a pretty high tech, yeah, innovative. I, I don't know thing. anything about how that happened, but I just remember I was like, I was like, holy shit! Like the kid who came up with QuickTime VR, that's totally insane. Oh, well, good for him, because that was a really innovative, very, very cool, immersive technology, and that was like a, a brand new way to interact with computers and to represent reality yeah. using a computer. And this was like 20 years or something before uh, Google Street View ever came out, but it's really essentially the same thing. You can even yep. like click in the environment to walk to the next room or something. So seeing the Beastie Boys studio That's was really a really cool. cool thing, and they would... They would put in these little uh, interview questions and, like, zany antics of the Beastie Boys themselves in there. So that was kind of cool. Um, one thing I really liked about this, of all things, is the ads. And, I mean, oh. I hate advertising in general. I really hate ad advertising. I find advertising as a practice just, like, offensive and something that I want to avoid. But the ads in this were really, really cool. Um, they, it would have, like, kinetic typography and... Uh, animated uh, animated logos and all this sort of like uh, base interactive uh, computerization of ads, right. but then they would have some really uh, some really innovative things as well. Um, I think the very best one was one uh, by Apple, uh, which of course it was sort of like a mist like environment. You were just in this one room, which would sort of look like a, a modern art museum. And in the corner, you know, there'd be a Mac computer in one corner, and there'd be, like, an easel in another. And there were all these little mini-games. There's, like, a Mad Libs sort of a thing. And when you start it, uh, it prompts you with this question, like, if I could do one thing, it would be... And then just, like, an underline where you're supposed huh. to type in whatever it is. And you just kind of look inside yourself and experience the the <laughs> wonderful dreaminess that is Macintosh. <laughs> but it was a, it was like a, a super cool Steve little Jobs thing. application. I like it. <laughs> it totally was. I know it's like super techno hippie kind of stuff, but it was a great little ad. It's like very impactful um, and eye catching sort of a thing. That was just one example of like seven or eight different ads there were on there. And this was an expensive thing, as I recall. It was like fifteen bucks or something. You could also subscribe. Oh shit! Really? To a bi monthly thing, and they had two uh, years. Uh, I only bought the one, and I found a few more on. Uh, archive.org. I have an ISO ripped of the one that I bought, and I'm going to put a link to that in our show notes. You can run it in Windows 3.1 or I think Windows 95. Awesome. And you just need to have QuickTime installed. It's very well worth it. The writing is quite funny and snarky, and uh, it's just really fun to navigate around. So totally recommend checking this out. It's something really unique. I'm sorry that it didn't catch on a little bit more. It was sort of, I guess it was very much like having uh, a web page on a CD. And so it was in that awkward time where we could already start to do some of these things on the web, but our, our uh, modems weren't fast enough to enjoy such rich multimedia content like videos and right. streaming audio and stuff. Right, and bandwidth was expensive. Uh, well... 
it was more expensive in time than it was in money, really. I think we would pay like 20 bucks a month or whatever for our dial-up oh, modems around 1995. And so that would get us like our four kilobytes a second. So if you wanted to watch one video for for 30 seconds, it would take you like 15 minutes to download it. Although I can I can, uh, I can can attest to Anatoly's comment because I it'll be in an up, upcoming episode on the early web and early internet access, but I can't wait to tell everybody my story of how I ran up a $1,200 phone bill. Unless I've have I have I already told that story or did I tell you privately, Brian? You made reference to it in our last podcast, but you didn't. Yeah. you stopped short of telling the story. Uh, so we'll get there. In, in, in 1996, it was very possible to run up a $1,200 phone bill in three weeks. <laughs> I believe it. You, you, using or sorry, internet bill, not even phone bill, internet bill. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, I I might as well bring up. Um, this is gonna be the last game I talk about. Um, did you guys play? Or here, uh, Dorlin Kindersley was like an edu- edutainment company. Um, they did these kind of eyewitness books, that kind of thing. They made yeah, they're a book publisher. Yeah, they're a book co- publisher. They made like uh, two or three really fantastic edutainment titles um, for uh, using Macromedia Director. One of them, the, the one that I played, well, there was one called How Things Work or How Stuff Works. And that was supposed to be amazing. Oh, that was a really popular series of theirs, yeah. and that was like a really descriptive, like uh, engineering exactly. and diagram, like technical communication kind of a thing. Exactly. Yeah. So they had one of those, which was super interactive, apparently. But the one I I had a demo of, and I got it. Um, I actually bought the thing about five years ago. Was called um, Stephen Biesti's Incredible Cross Section Stowaway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what an awesome name! I know. I'm like that's like the best. Google search ever because it'll only hit like the one page that has it every time. <laughs> it's like based on based on this one Dorling Kindersley book called I think it's called the book was called Stephen BSD's Incredible Cross Sections Man of War, and the, basically this guy is totally insane. This guy spends thousands of hours. I think he gave an estimate. He spends two two to three thousand hours to draw like what would you call them um, cross section cutaways of houses, of ships, of cars, of anything you could imagine. He'll just cut it up into pieces using, like, very, very fine pencils and very fine paintbrushes and then show you mm-hmm. everything that's going on inside. 2,000 hours. That's like a year of a full-time job. That's exactly what he estimated. was one year of a full-time job. You guys got like, look up this article somewhere on Stephen BSD's art practice. It's the best thing ever. He says, I wake up at 8, PM, 8 a.m., I have a coffee from 8 a.m. to 8.15 a.m. From 8.15 to 11.45, I work. From 11.45 to 12.15, I eat lunch, usually a sandwich. And it's like, this guy's been doing the same thing every day for 20 years. So Sounds very organized. Yeah, he like, sounds like super pedantic type. Um, but this game is amazing. So what, what they did was they took his book, which is just these... Amazing! If anybody gets a chance to just quickly go look up Stephen BSD's cross section stowaway, he does these cutaways of the ship showing you all of the little um, tasks that sailors were doing in an 18th century or is it 17th century uh, British man of war ship. Um, is it British or Spanish? I can't remember. A man of war. Um, so mm-hmm. basically, you'll you know you'll have sailors who are scrubbing the decks or swabbing the decks, and they'll. And because in the book is like non-animated, you'll just see that picture. But in the game, they animated all of the characters, so they're all doing their jobs on each part of the ship. The best thing is, this guy's got like this fucking amazing, like I don't know what to call it, um, dark and kind of like scatological sense of humor. 
so all of the like every single page has somebody taking a shit, taking a piss, puking, having their arms cu- cut off. It is like one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> and like it's like unbelievable that this is a kid's book, but I remember thinking like when I was like I think I was thirteen or fourteen when I came across it, I thought it was like the single greatest multimedia thing I'd ever saw because it's like you saw the ship's doctor sawing off someone, some guy's arm and then tossing it up into the air and it would fall into the slop bucket of blood. <laughs> it's like, oh, cool. it was just like it's, uh, super dark. I'm looking at some of the images now. I'm sure I've seen a book with this stuff, but it reminds me a little bit of the Where's Waldo kind of art yeah, style it's where similar. it's just like super hyper detailed and like no square inch is without some kind of activity or embellishment. Exactly, and that's totally his thing is he loves to cram in a lot of activity into like a very, very small amount of space and uh, oh, it's like his art style is incredible. You know, that's like one thing and it's all you're bringing up. It's like we keep saying this over and over. It's like so many of these games have like such distinctive art styles. Like yeah, you would never confuse them with anything else. Yeah. No, and, that's actually uh, also very good uh, segue into the whole educational thing, where educational right. entertainment is is really not my area of expertise, but a lot of those entertainment things were made in the 90s using Macromedia Director, and just, you know, kids' products, pro- pro- uh, games for children. And sometimes we were like, I've seen a few, I forgot the names now, but like interactive stories where literally you just click through slides and... Have the yeah, stories exactly. All different complexity, but also um, there were this. Uh, I know, like Simon and Schuster, I think did the yep. Nikolai series. Uh, there was this oh, animated I... adventures of this boy and his cat, and they're kind of surfacing. Uh, I think Mac people started archiving them. There's at least ten of them. Uh, oh, that's crazy! Like really weirdly grotesque art style, but they're children's games and uh, <laughs> like Nikolai's, Nikolai's pirates and Nikolai's this, and Nikolai's that, and this cat sounds really weird. He's like an adult man doing like you know falsetto voice. It's really, but uh, they're those quirky games. But they're somewhat educational, but more the just weird. You know how a lot of those actually children's books in the '90s also had those weird art styles, right? I love those. Yeah. Mm. To me, as far as as the darker the children's products go the better for me uh mm-hmm. but uh so i don't not familiar with many of those uh but um a few that i am familiar with uh, i would like to talk about this company it's also kind of uh, going away not very famous uh it was called uh, headbone interactive and okay that sure sounds in familiar in the mid 90s they made a whole slew of those educational titles um most of which i won't touch on but one of them was like Pennsylvania. Uh, and they all had those beautiful artists involved to do the surreal sort of educational games that taught everything from reading to math to whatever. But they had this small series of games, um, which I am very fond of. And, uh, well, at least the two. The two games are Elroy Goes Bugzerk and Elroy Hits the Pavement. Uh, and oh, they're... I've heard of Elroy Hits the Pavement. Yeah, Elroy mm-hmm. Hits the Pavement is actually really good. Uh, but uh, there's especially well, everyone hits the payment. Although a sequel, not really. I don't know what's so educational about it. But the first game, and it's always this colorful lifestyle uh, art style, where uh, sort of background art is represented by sort of scanned in and warped photos, but it's in black and white. And then everything sort of like all the animations are uh, uh, done in the sort of really solid color, full solid shapes rough angles uh, sort of um, 
uh, style, and it's really really cool. And it's this boy, um, Elroy, and his friend. Uh, um, I forget what uh, the girl's name is, and his uh, his dog Blue go look for this bug called the Tectolaptra, uh, and they learn a lot about bugs. Um, oh. And there's just multi-chapter interactive stories where you can do choices. Basically, you click on a choice and you watch like a silly animation. And you can die, actually. You can make wrong choices. And then you learn stuff and you pass quizzes, like the lazy entertainment route. But they're really cool and very well animated, despite the minimalistic sort of things that the production value somehow managed to be pretty high. And they're known for the guy who voices Elroy um, is, uh, you know, he does that in that sort of very popular... Uh, uh, 90s thing where children sound uh, um, like uh, adults with high-pitched voices who smoked like way too many cigarettes. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, like, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah right from recess or like, uh, 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 you know, uh, a lot of that was going on in the 90s. Like, yeah. So, and it's and it's actually voiced by, I forgot what this guy's name is. Is, is it Dave Scully or Dave Sully? The, the guy basically who voices Master Chief in Halo. Uh, he did that kid so uh, Bugzerk Elroy Goes Bugzerk is a entertainment title and it's lesser of the two for me and Elroy Hits the Pavement is Blue the dog gets kidnapped and Elroy tracks him down to this mobster's uh, sort of uh, uh, hideout and he has to like go through the hideout and find the dog and you can sort of spy on mobsters and stuff and it's all very very humorous there's lots and lots of animation it's it's lots of fun not very educational and um after that headbone kind of dropped the ball and did elroy's costume closet where it was just like this guy drags elroy and his friend into the theater and you just pick their costumes and then when you pick the matching ones they play out just a cartoon basically using those costumes i mean it's cute but not very interactive but you were supposed to be able to download extra costumes from the internet and then they let whatever that guy's name, Dave Scully or Dave Sally, uh, uh, design his own game. And I actually don't remember the title, so I'm going to try to refer to something where are my notes. I can't find my notes. One second. Technically. That's what, the voice actor they let him design his own yeah, game? Yeah. Oh, here it is. And it was called Is an Augie Escape from Dimension Q? Um, hmm. And uh, it was kind of like Elroy Games, but crap. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't good. I, I don't like it, but I would especially recommend Elroy Hits the Pavement. I wouldn't... I don't know if it's really for children. It's a bit too frustrating, because you can lose a lot of progress, because they're like sort of chapter autosaves, and you can rewind to the beginning um, of the chapter. Uh, but there are certain sections where you can lose a legitimate amount of progress, so I, I think it might be a bit tough, but I actually, as an adult, I, I like playing them. I actually had to map the mansion just to myself, wow. and I'm... I'm 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 not eight years old, so. Uh, <laughs> Thank uh, but, you for the uh, clarification. I have, yeah, I, I have uh, I have lots of gray hair, and uh, um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I had fun playing those. So those are like sort of of all a multitude of uh, interactive stories, entertainment, and just kids games that were made with Macromedia director. Uh, the Elroy games to me stand out the most, just because they're they nobody really remembers them. They're not very well known. I think there is one. Uh, let's play each on on uh, YouTube by the same guy. Um, uh, so somebody, at least one person, knows they exist. But um, cool. uh, they're pretty cool. So uh, that's for the that's for that. Oh, oh another interactive uh, sort of weird a weird thing. Um, a kids game actually published by Sierra. Sierra published the Macromedia Director title. 
really? although they didn't develop it. It's called Stay Tuned. Oh yeah, uh, right. Oh, that was that one where you make cartoons? No, no, no. It's point and click. Sounds it's familiar. Game. It's kind of like humongous title, but it's first person. Like you basically go through screens and you have to solve puzzles, and everything you click on turns into like a little cartoon. Uh, and you have to find okay. a remote control and put like the channels back and stuff. It's a cute, it's a kids' adventure with lots of lots of good animation and voices and everything. CR didn't develop, but it was one of those things where in the nineties they started publishing a lot of stuff. Uh, so that was one that of those things. That, that game wasn't based on the really bad John Ritter movie called Stay Tuned, was it? Uh, oh, it was spelled differently. I oh, think T O O, whereas the movie was T U. Right? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I was making sure because it, it also that movie also featured a remote control that you like uh, basically the audience was the, you were assuming the position of somebody in control of the remote control huh yeah. mm. I actually think I um, we're coming up on three <laughs> three hours of macromedia um, do you guys well, want to close close up with a, a macromedia story well I, I, I you know what there's just like a couple I want to just blow through like really quick because I don't have much of, to say about them Sure. Okay. I, I, yeah, like ten minutes, because I'm on a roll now, and I'm fucking kill myself if I don't fucking exhaust this list. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go for it, man. Okay. So yeah, uh, um, there is a certain group of uh, sort of cult, sort of macromedia director things. Um, one of them is is uh, three games by this one guy called I think it's Istvan Peli. Um, they are the Majestic, uh, Symbiocom, and Zero Critical. They're all one-person-made adventure games, all published by mm. Bethesda. Uh, one guy published games in the 90s was kind of a, I don't know, big deal, especially wow. three. Uh, they're all kind of two years apart, and they're kind of sequels, but not really to each other, where the first two are sort of first point and click mystoid in space. It was like a disappeared space cruise ship, and archaeologist goes through it and sees their aliens or something like that. Uh, by Zero Critical, and I remember seeing an ad for it. They're like third person, but still not voice, not anything. He wouldn't have anybody else like work on it or whatever. Right. Uh, but they were all published by Bethesda. And funny, I think, funny fact that he still works for Bethesda. I think he was last credited in like Fallout 3 as one of the art leads or something. So he was that guy who started doing the 3D modeling in college and got three games published. Um, oh, shit. And that. Another thing uh, about it is we previously mentioned, and I just like to rattle off the titles, and it's about as much attention as they're going to get, is the, is the parody entertainment. Uh, oh, yeah. So they made those parody games, and uh, yeah, let's let... <laughs> parody. Yeah, they're, they're not really parody games, but at least the few that I know of are Pissed, Microshaft, Windblows 98... The X Files, and Star Wars, uh-huh. and those games are about as creative as those titles. And they're so they're stupid. Bad. Yeah, they're they're bad, bad, bad. But they certainly made a whole lot of them. Maybe even more. I bet they made a lot of money too. Just for reference, they they tried to be Mad Magazine, but they're just not. Yeah, yeah but without not without, any, without any talent or sense yeah. of humor. Yeah. So there's that. I remember and, seeing know, Microsoft Windblows '98 and. All I can think of the best possible review you can give it is shit sandwich. Yeah, pretty much. That's, all, that's, <laughs> that's what it. all of them were. Yeah, really bad. And uh, um, also, uh, the, the last, you know, uh, sometimes celebrities went into whole game making business, and that's often also involved macromedia director. And one of those celebrities was actually Peter Gabriel. 
Um, oh wow! Yes, that's right. And he had two titles. Uh, one of them, uh, Explorer One. Uh, there was never a two or anything else. Um, is uh, that's not really a game. That's more of like an interactive encyclopedia of Peter Gabriel. And I'd say, despite it's like garish art style and whatever, because it's not really a game, although there's certain game elements in it. Uh, I'd say it's pretty cool. You just click on things and you discover things and you go all over the world and you see all those quick-time videos of uh, the studio behind the scenes and that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of info in there and there's a lot of cool little art bits. Um, uh, I've seen that one somewhere. It has, like, really nifty design. Like, it has... It's pretty psychedelic and it's, like, really dense with... But it's functional. With, like, colorful imagery and stuff. ...and everything... So I guess that was successful because after that, Peter Gabriel went on to make an actual game called Peter Gabriel Eve. And uh, yeah, that's a full-fledged game where you solve puzzles. In a, and that's one of those games where it's kind of like Mistoid, but you can pan around. It's 360 view. Um, sometimes you can also ease up and down a little bit uh, in a sort of like a, a letterbox format and you can just nudge the edges. Uh, uh Yes, it's a psychedelic puzzle game where you have to figure out what to click on what and what to drag where. And it never makes any sense. Uh, the art is pretty good, kind of. I don't know, just really kitsch kind of thing. Just pop art mixed with 3D renders. It makes no sense. It's really tough to play. I know certain people like it. I don't know what are they thinking, what they're smoking. Um, and it also, I think, notorious for having a sticker on a box, which I only recently found out about. I think the sticker is like... Um, uh, more than 300 hours of gameplay, something like that. And, uh, or it's like more than 50 hours of gameplay. Anyway, it's basically it, the only way it's that much gameplay is if you play it for five minutes and put it down for 50 hours and, and then come back. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, there, there is no way. I don't know what they're thinking. You can Google it online and see uh, and see if uh, if uh, if that's yeah, I think it's terrible, despite rather high production value for, for that sort of thing. And I think we're going to close down with one of the um, sort of later titles, uh, which was kind of briefly known. Uh, it's a game called uh, Bad Milk. Oh, um, yeah, I played Bad Milk. Yeah, so Bad Milk was only famous because it won a prize, a prize in I, uh, Independent Games Festival. Before. That's right. One of the, I think at maybe the first or one of the first IGFs at GDC. First, yeah, and it's before you know current indie games had standards. So, uh, um, I mean, it's a funny concept, I guess, uh, but it's it's a bad game, and it's just basically. Yeah. Well, well, you've played it. I've been talking for like two hours. So, uh, do you want to share your your memories of it? Um, I remember what what I do remember about um, Bad Milk was that. It was the first time I'd ever heard of the GDC, the first time I'd ever heard of the IDF, and I they had like a free demo of it on their website after they won. And the idea of the game is, I think it's kind of a mixture of FMV and a little bit of exploration where you would you wake up and you you're having breakfast or something and you drink you drink milk out of the carton and then you notice on the carton the milk has been expired for six months. Yeah, and it's like it's like it's like a bizarre. And then after that, it becomes like this bizarre, like, what would you call it, like... Um, well, it's a purgatory um, world. Psychedelic but, fantasy. Yeah, but you go between those nodes, and each node is a right. self-contained level. And sometimes yeah, exactly. 
you control like a slide. It's really hard to describe with words. Like you control like with movement of your mouse, you control a guy on screen, but it's not FMV. Just like each frame has been digitized, and where your frame is, that's where the guy is, and you need to like yeah. guide him under the table or over the table or like push some switches. And some levels, actually, my favorite levels in that game is walking around in the dark. Like the level is completely blank, and you just have arrows. Oh. And, and each yeah, one, it's actually, like, and the, like don't they use hear. sound as a prompt? Yes, and he's like it's either like you click forward and he's like he's going forward like all of a sudden yeah. you hit the wall he's it's actually pretty good or sometimes like you would go through the That's door clever. my favorite is you click an arrow like it would be like mm, it's a door like you click arrow to open he's like and you hear like he like opens the door walks through the door and then it's like a side of like a lion roaring and like the door closes yeah it was like a surprisingly surprisingly um i don't know they did a lot with very very like little technology yeah and the best part of that game although it takes a while to get to all you have to get basically by solving all those nodes you'll eventually get a password and the way you enter a password is this guy uh shaved his head and then grew out the hair on his face and on his head for a whole month and took a picture every day so from different angles so you control this rotating head uh which grows hair at will and you that's that's used it's really hard to describe but that's used (laughs) to enter the password uh, <laughs> uh, to win the game and and get rid of the get, get out of the purgatory, it sounds a lot better than it is. Uh, besides yeah. being somewhat visually creative, and that I love the rotating head with growing hair um, and the walking walking around in the dark, it quickly becomes tedious and 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 boring. And yeah. that actually came out somewhere towards is it in like early two thousands even maybe? Yeah, I think I want to say like two thousand two. 2002 yeah that was very because, late uh, I was yeah it's it's incredibly like I had no idea you, people were even making stuff with director at that point yeah so <laughs> that's that but that's uh, as I was saying this is just scratching the surface like there's more things disip- that already disappeared and nobody even remembers or nobody even bought them more than any of the titles that we listed and there's certainly a lot more that I can't remember, but I know if I'll see like a screenshot of one, I'll I'll be like, oh yes, of course that one. How could I forget that one? But there was, uh, I will say probably. I mean, we listed off quite a solid, you know, like a decent amount, but but I will say yeah. there is at least five, ten times more than that. Wow. I'm sure there's also a lot of educational software too, and I don't even mean just edutainment, but like, like pres- presentation software, right. training. Yeah, I'd love to know more about it, but alas, it's a very, very hard thing to research. I tried and tried and just can hardly find a thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, does that round out our show on Director? Holy cow. Uh, Perhaps. Well, the only other thing I have on my list is um, PC Gamer Magazine bundled some CD-ROMs, and they had a Macromedia director, sort of a rapper, I might say. So instead of, you know, it was a CD-ROM with shareware and a couple of utilities and some reviews on it and stuff. But for a few years, they had this really weird, of course, mist-like kind of an island that you could walk around on. Maybe walking around is a generous way to put it, but you sort of like scroll around a little bit, and there are these interactive elements and these full motion video animated things. 
Um, it was just a way of kind of navigating around to get to the different features that were on the CD-ROM. I've got one of these uh, CDs from 1994 or 1995 uh, ripped to ISO, and I will also Sweet. stick that in our show notes. It will also be uh, executable either in Windows 3.1 through DOSBox or in Windows 95, I believe. <laughs> a lot of magazines awesome. did that. Sometimes it's very creative. Like, I still have my CDs for old magazines that did that. So just for that reason, I, I'm holding on to them. Yeah, I've got I've got three or four of those. I used to have way more, but I threw them out because I never thought they'd be of value, and now I kind of regret it. I figured they're shareware, so there's no way shareware will ever disappear. But, of course, there's a bunch of games I've never even heard of on a lot of these CDs, so it makes me wish I had kept more of them. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I tossed out all my CD-ROM today um, mags, and I used to have 10 or 12 of the discs on a spindle, but I threw out the spindle a few years ago, and I totally regret it. Mm-hmm. way it goes. Uh, uh, well, folks, it's about past my bedtime. <laughs> it's, it's actually, what do you say we call it here? It's actually about an hour past starving. my drinking. So. <laughs> oh, oh, don't let podcasting stop you from drinking. Yeah, no, no it, it should only increase the amount of oil. Nah, nah, I did it once. Um, uh, yeah, no, nah, not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> You've had to endure like two years of boinging, haven't you? <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I'm going to go and eat some food. I haven't eaten since lunch, and I am starving to oh, death. God. I actually managed All to right, eat. A, well, I managed to eat a banana quietly while you guys were talking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's not deprive ourselves of uh, of nutrients and fluids. Um, I want to thank everybody very very much for listening in, and of course, Anatoly, thank you so very much for for joining us today. We'd love to have you aboard and love to have you speaking personally instead of yelling corrections at us from the shadows. No, it's, so it's thank like I said, it's a, it's a pleasure uh, to uh, to be on this podcast. It's, it's beautiful. I, I don't care that it's three hours long. Uh, like, I would listen to this. I'm sure somebody else would. Oh, well, thank you very much. And that goes double for your podcast, by the way. It, as infrequently as it comes out, you really wait for uh, really uh, good, thorough topics. And I'd uh, love to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find your podcast and any, anything else you'd like to uh, plug. Anything that, uh, if you don't know who I am, uh, I, I talk about DOS games, and uh, I have a YouTube channel and a podcast, And but I'm mostly active on Twitter. There's also a Facebook page, but basically anywhere where you can... Google uh, or use the search engine of your choice to find DOS Nostalgia, that's me. So find me on Twitter, contact me on Twitter, tell me usually about DOS stuff, but if you tell me about Macromedia director stuff, I will not yell back at you, I promise. Um, <laughs> even though it's not DOS, I'll try not to. Uh, just, do it, just do it after lunch. Uh, that's the official not DOS time for me. So uh, I, I would love to hear about more stuff. Because it's it's my passion that I don't get to talk about often, unless it's on this podcast and for for you know for a long period of time. <laughs> That's awesome! I'm so glad you Good. finally got the chance to talk about it. Because uh, yeah, and for anybody who hasn't listened to uh, DOS Nostalgia podcast, you're if you're into DOS, you'll you're going to cream your underwear listening to the interviews. Yeah. <laughs> also, also <laughs> both of you have been on my podcast, so, so yeah, there's a podcast yeah. and podcast. <laughs> This is true. Episodes that everybody loves. So, hey, it's like uh, we're getting the band back together. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's right. Real pleasure. All right. Oh, and um, I do highly recommend Anatoly's YouTube channel as well, by the way. He's got some really cool stuff on there, like retrospectives of, like, 
uh, you know, like an hour and a half of little clips of games from any one particular year. Or I think I, my favorite is these really slow vector renderings oh, those of are some amazing. old Sierra games. The Manhunter one in particular is awesome, where it just really, really slowly draws these like macabre, cartoony yes. backgrounds and scenes. It's oh, they're, yeah, they're, they're mind really, blowing. Really cool. It was fun to do, um, that, but and... I did rip it, rip it off. So. You know, from a guy who did the one for well, Space Coast 3. So I took that idea from there. Can't take credit for that one. Okay. Well, yeah, you're, those are both really cool games to see, but I think the spooky ambience of Manhunter yeah. is especially cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, All one, right, so please. one last plug. Um, for, I mentioned this last episode, but I doubt anybody got through all three hours of it. Um, <laughs> if you would like a copy of, this is very timely, of Multimedia Mega Pack Compilation Volume Zero, I'm going to be mailing these out, so um, this is a terrible, 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 terrible DOS scene um, for the, which basically looks like it was manufactured by, you know, a uh, mentally handicapped kid in 1993. Uh, <laughs> so if you want to copy this, um, mail your snail mail addy to, uh, is it SquareFM at demodulated.com? Square- that's it, squarefm at demodulated.com. Yeah, send your snail mail address there. I will send you a copy of this along with the cover disc, which is on a 1.4 meg floppy. Uh, <laughs> good luck to anybody who actually even tries to use it. Um, but which the, the cover disc contains a bunch of amazing stuff, which you'll totally take. So that's the last time I mention it. After that, I'm basically not going to be sending out any more copies just because it's too exhausting to uh, do all that mailing stuff. Well, thank you so much yet again for that, Chris. And yeah, please do take us up on this offer, folks. We've had a couple of people already send us their addresses, so don't be shy. <laughs> All right, well, thank thank you guys very, very much for sticking around with us and for tuning in. Um, once again, you can reach us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com or by email, squarefm at demodulated.com. And uh, thank you again uh, to... Oh, gosh, what's our caller's Abby. name? Was it Avi? Thank you. Thank you so much, Avi, for uh, sending in your voicemail. We'd love to hear voicemail or emails or anything at all. We'll be happy to uh, play it on the show, discuss it on the show. You can get us at Twitter at SquareWavesFM. And uh, nobody calls or tell BBS, but what the heck? <laughs> SquareWaves.zap2.org. Awesome. TCP port 23. We'd love to see you on there. Fantastic. So, awesome. Thanks a bunch, guys. Uh, love you like crazy, and we will talk to you soon. All right. Love you. See you guys see you next week. week. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.